0: Southern skies on my medium. G'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 45 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher over here and that's Grant McHeron over there. G'day mate. Hey mate, how you going? I tell you what mate, I'm freezing to death today, it's uh, pouring rain here in Melbourne today.
1: Yeah, well, something's got to balance out that beautiful weather we had for the last week. But uh, yeah, I just wish it wasn't. Well, it's good for the dams and all that, but it's flooding out in the Ara Valley, so I'm not going to be flying
0: out there. So hopefully the ground's dry enough for us to fly in the city. And I'll tell you what, mate, it's uh, good for my lawnmower. I've had it dusted off several times with all this sunshine <laughs> and in rain. It's like a jungle out there in my backyard. Yeah, the same thing with my
1: nature strip here. But uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. My lawnmower will survive.
0: Yeah, so uh, tell us about the uh, the ballooning before we go too much further in, mate. How's the ballooning activity been going out there? In- the
1: well, my shoulder is recovering and I'm getting back out into the uh, crewing once again, uh, doing some secondary crew kind of stuff where I chase around and driving the bus. But uh, yeah, I'm starting to get back into the point where I can be full on hot air balloon crew once again, uh, which means that I'll also be able to finally finish off my balloon license. I uh, just have to organise time with the guys to go out into the middle of nowhere and fly a few more hours to finish that up. But uh, until then, I'm crewing in the Yarra Valley just outside of Melbourne, and I'm crewing here in the
0: city as well. And I'm still driving trains. But Grant, good news, annual leave is only a week away.
1: Whoa-ho! It's time to cr- crunch out some of these episodes that have been building up in the back burner, huh?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We uh, should apologise, folks. We have been a little slow getting the last few shows out, but uh, we've got quite a fair bit of stuff uh, planned for while I'm on holidays, because you know, otherwise um, my wife will find plenty of other things for me to do, I'm sure. So we can't have that.
1: No, 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 no. So no, uh,
0: podcast before home improvements. Absolutely, exactly right. So that's true. Well, talking about episode 45, Grant, we've got three distinctly different subjects we're going to tackle this week. Oh, uh, a bit of a bit of a potpourri of flavour, huh? Absolutely. Whatever he said, you know, Grant, you're always the linguist of this program. Very, very cultured. I feel so in- inferior when you talk like that
1: mate. It's pretty scary if I'm the cultured one. The closest (laughs) I get to culture is ripping off the top of a tub of yoghurt. Oh,
0: there you go. Anyway, uh, we're going to kick off this show with uh, another one of our Red Bull Air Race uh, Season 2010 wrap-ups with uh, Matt Hall this time around, and he's going to tell us a bit about uh, what he's learnt through the season, how it went, and uh, what the plans are for the future. So uh, another really uh, entertaining and interesting uh, interview with Matt, and uh, we'll have a little bit of uh, extra uh, bonus material, which we'll tell you about at the end of the show. Uh, How to keep people listening to the end, huh? There you go. Big radio style, Grant. and uh, Stay uh, tuned, more to come. Yeah, more to come. We're also going to talk about flight simulators this episode, and Grant, we're also going to talk about some very, very small aircraft towards the end. I've been doing some interviews at the uh, Victorian Scale Aircraft Association's uh, Victorian State Championships, which were held uh, out here not far from where I live uh, just a couple of weekends ago. Really interesting stuff, and we've got three interviews coming up with some gentlemen there that I also spoke to.
1: Cool. Yeah, I quite like the uh, scale model aircraft. They're a lot of fun to uh, try to fly. I seem to crash them all too often. I have of a couple of scale remote control aircraft in, in bits in the garage, including one helicopter that I need to repair and get up flying. They're all The aircraft are all electrical, but the helicopter is gas powered, so very stinky and gets a lot of attention when it does actually get off the ground.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like interesting stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, the, the the level of uh, attention to detail was just staggering. It's just amazing, and uh, they had a beautiful day out there. So uh, yeah, cool. that was really interesting. So that'll be coming up in the third segment. We've also got so, a little bit of listener mail and some shout outs. So uh, Grant, let's kick it off with our first interview with Matt Hall Well the Red Bull Air Race has been run and won for 2010 a rather premature ending unfortunately but uh, joining us now is Matt Hall to give us a bit of a wrap-up of the season and uh, talk about some of the events that have happened uh, since it ended Hi there Matt how are you?
2: hey guys I'm well yourselves
0: not too yeah, bad yeah, we're not? not too bad you're sounding rather relaxed Matt it sounds like the uh, month off has uh, done you a bit of good.
2: Yeah, I think I think it was needed. I'd, I was running on empty, and uh, and actually, uh, I think I got below empty um, just after the season finished. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a needed break, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, there's nothing quite like a like a wind down. I mean, it's it's a bit sad that the season finished uh, early, and it's it's been a bit of a knocker for us to hear that uh, it's not coming back on 2011. Yeah, we we were kind of looking forward to watching watching you race again next year. But uh, let's have a chat first about the the last race of the season. You managed to come third in that one.
2: Yeah, that was um, yeah that was um, I, I guess I felt a bit of pressure in that race uh, just from you know the the last time I'd uh, I'd raced was uh, where I'd actually uh, you know, contacted the water. Um, I was confident in my own ability, but um, but I also you know, knew that I had a lot of people watching me and um, you know, to, to even just put one small step in the wrong spot was going to uh, you know, bring uh, criticism against me. So um, I, just, I just knew I had to fly a very, very clean race from, you know, from day one of training right through and um, I'm pretty happy with, uh, with that I achieved that and yeah, lucky for me I've got a pretty fast plane and team as well so just by flying smoothly and cleanly I ended up um, you know, getting a good result as well which was, uh, that was actually the bonus. The race was all about just reproving myself as a clean and safe race pilot.
0: When you say there was a lot of pressure on you're talking about all those sorts of issues, there, Matt. How has the scrutiny been from, uh, I guess, from the Red Bull people in particular? Have they been really on you? or Have they just sort of let you get on with you with the job?
2: No, they, they really did just let me get on with the job. You know, um, yeah, you know, I, I actually said to um, to the director of aviation at one stage, you know, if is there a target on me or you know, do I, am I under extra pressure? And you know, do you guys trust me? And he said straight, you know, blatantly to me, if we didn't trust you, we wouldn't let you in the track. So. Um, you know, so they were they were very clear in to me that um there was absolutely no issue with me going racing because they are you know they are very safety conscious so um so that at least took uh, some pressure off me but uh, yeah that said i did know that you know you just can't help it if uh, you know someone's uh, someone's crashed an aircraft in the previous race there's always people just going to be you uh, know here he is again i wonder hmm. what i wonder if anything's going to happen and um and, yeah. and and so it was very you know, it was very important to me personally that I flew that entire race uh, you know error free basically and and that's pretty much what I did um, you know very clean lines uh, no no penalties that were on the danger side and any penalty I got was uh, was purely about actually being high or something like that so uh, it, it all worked out pretty well for me and yeah.
0: flying over the land versus flying over the water I mean I've um, I think it's sort of going back to almost the original roots of the air race where they were originally flying over fields and this sort of stuff does it introduce a different dynamic to the way you're flying I mean is there a different perception that you have flying low over the water versus flying over you know more solid landmarks or is it, it's just the flying is flying and that's that
2: Yeah I was um, I was interested to see how it would how um, it would be and it it uh, it actually ended up easier than I thought it would be uh, in fact I'd say it was easier than racing over water in the end. Um, initially it was exactly how I thought it would be that there was going to be some you know, you, you just you're getting the uh, the sensation of objects around you while you're racing and that is then impacting your brain about actually how low you are. And uh and you know, this periphery will be something that's that's grabbing your attention. And and that was definitely happening. So but because I expected it and I'd planned for it, I flew the first training session almost entirely above the gates, you know, probably five or ten feet above the gates. You know, just knowing that I was going to be, you know, one, I'm back, I'm getting back into the track and two that it's over land. And then after, you know, after probably the second training round, training run, um, I was actually pretty comfortable flying down. Um once once I identified all of the features that were flying over, you know, there was there was a couple of elevated pieces and there was some ponds and there was, you know, there was a, a little shack that we went past at one stage. So once you got them mapped out in your brain of uh you know you you know you're gonna fly, you know Past the uh, past the little shack, um, yeah, it was it was all fine. But um, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to have gone straight down low level in the track. Uh, it's funny how I call low level now below fifty feet. <laughs> I was hanging out. I was hanging out at medium altitude at seventy feet. Uh, so uh, it, it, then it, then it all became easier. And in fact, then by race day, um, I I knew certain landmarks around the track as well that were in indicators to me on how my how my track was. Um, you know whether I was wide or narrow or whether I needed to float a little bit more or how the wind was affecting me that you know, I know I'd be, I'd be crossing on the, uh, the inside apex of a turn and I knew that I'd, um, you know, I'd cross uh, across the, uh, the, the slight discoloration of grass as I'm pulling into uh, the knife edge gate and things like that. Uh, I, I really started to pick up all these extra sensors around me that would, um, that would indicate to me how, how the run was going and if I was on a, on a good line, a tight line or a wide line.
0: I was just thinking too when you were saying that the only the only uh, words that I like to associate with 50 feet when I'm flying is short final Matt. but uh, yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah
0: yeah the little computer voice 100 feet 50 feet yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, just think, I was just thinking the reason I ask about the perception is I remember when I uh, was learning to fly and I started into uh, nighttime flying and just remembering there how the your whole perception particularly when you're coming into land is is so different and I just imagine that not that I've ever flown low level you know over water or even over Overland, for that matter, but I just imagine that there would be a similar sort of difference there.
2: Yeah, and I guess, um, I guess the thing that's on our side is that you know the race, all the race pilots train overland. So when you're not at a racetrack and you come back to your home or you know wherever you do your your low level uh, workups and training, that's overland. So you know, doing an air show or those sorts of things, you know, it's it's not overland that's as populated with, um, you know, with roads and bushes and and shacks, but yeah, you because know, you're typically over a runway, um, but you're still very used to flying, you know low level um, over land.
1: Well, the the upshot was you, uh, as you said, you you flew it uh, smoothly, you flew it right, you flew it within the lines, and uh, didn't push it too hard. But you still managed to come third. So that's that's a pretty brilliant result for someone who's just going into, uh, you know, you're going into prove that to yourself and to everyone else that hey, I am able to fly this, I'm able to do it right, and uh, yet you still come third. So well done for that
2: yeah thank you and it, it, yeah you know, i guess i just i flew it like i flew the perth race when i knew i was under a lot of pressure at perth as well being a home race and i just you know personally reviewed how i did that and what tactics i used and I, I pretty much employed exactly the same situation that you know just fly fly clean and safe and then as the day progresses if i'm feeling good i'll continue just to tighten a few lines here and there and um and that got me into the final four and in the final four. I actually you know, deliberately backed off slightly because um, I, I'd achieved everything I wanted, and if something went wrong in the final four, I'd be remembered for what I did wrong, not um, what I did right. So um, I went out and enjoyed my last flight in uh, in the racetrack, and um, yeah, it en- ended up on the podium regardless.
0: I think that's the key to it too. I mean, you say you're enjoying it, you know, yeah. that's, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? To-
2: yeah, exactly. If, if you're not enjoying it, you t- tense up and, uh, and you don't, as I was saying, I was taking in all those extra little uh, bits and pieces of, uh, you know, the color of the grass going underneath me. I was, I was able to take that in while I was flying at, um, you know, 150 to 200 knots at 40 feet. Whereas if you're not enjoying yourself and you're tense, you're not going to pick up those extra things that uh, they all go towards um, improving your performance.
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm just contemplating 140 knots. 40 feet, yeah, (laughs)
2: all that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, fine. (laughs) That's the easy bit. It's turning at 12G is uh, is the hard bit. (laughs) So
0: tell us, Matt, uh, you've been having issues with the aircraft all year with regard to, I think you've told us before, you were struggling to get the weight and balance right, the centre of gravity, this sort of stuff. Did that sort of sort itself out towards the end of the season? Uh, Obviously, you're getting better results there at the end. So, you know, was that a factor?
2: Yeah, well, what we did... um yeah, you know, we, we worked on it in New York, um, but we didn't quite get it uh, the way we wanted it. So when I was still training in New York, and uh, there were still some issues with how it was set up. So, um, you know, I talked to uh, talked to a lot of friends of mine in Australia who were aerodynamics engineers, and uh, we came up with a plan that we we're going to use once we got to Germany. So uh, that involved uh, we went back to a small battery, and 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 if you remember in Abu Dhabi, you know, I actually. Uh, was forced out technically because we couldn't start the plane and one of the issues there was having a battery that was too small. Um, But I went back to the small battery in Germany with the risk that I would have trouble starting the plane, Um, but the battery was actually an issue for the handling characteristics of the aircraft because the larger battery wouldn't fit in the original battery mount which was on the the spar or on the center of gravity so when we put the larger battery, and we had to mount it back behind my seat, which obviously pushes the centre of gravity even yeah you know, quite a way back. When you put a um, a ten kilogram battery um, yeah you know, back behind the seat of one of these aircraft, so we did that. Uh, we we continued to just retrim the flight controls slightly, so they had uh, a little bit more movement in them uh, for, the, uh, for the effect. And then um, any other ballast that was in the aircraft, we removed it from the rear side and put it uh, forward of the firewall. And uh, that then made the plane fly um, you know, almost like a normal aircraft, which was uh, which was really nice for me to uh, to go out there and, and fly. That's a change. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So, so how did you uh, deal with the concept of the like the the risk of it not starting? Were you did you change your uh, startup procedures so other systems were turned off so they weren't drawing on the battery?
2: Well, yeah, we, uh, we learned a lot this year and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, basically we always had the aircraft on ground power whenever it was whenever it was on the ground it was plugged into uh, mains power just on a trickle charger uh, and uh, I managed the power draw a bit more aggressively that uh, you know I had screens and things turned off you know I've got uh, three screens you know, um, LCDs in the cockpit with me so we had them turned off while I was uh, on the ground uh, just you know and uh, using mechanical uh, mechanical gauges to check uh, oil pressure, et cetera. Um, we had the alternator field turned off when I was on the ground at low RPM. If the alternator wasn't actually providing current to the uh, battery, I actually completely turned the uh, field off as well because the field draws about two amps. So a lot of little things like that um, you know, helped us out. And we uh, we then ground we, we then started the aircraft every time on uh, ground power, so uh, jump started it effectively. It had enough power to start on its own. And that's one of the rules for the race. Um, so we could do it, but um, we just didn't want to take the risk of it running low. So we uh, we basically jump started it every uh, every race, which which on its own <laughs> actually had some issues on race day because we broke the um, on going into the top twelve. Um, Jack was plugging in the ground power and snapped the. Um, Snapped the receiver <laughs> inside oops, the oops. aircraft. Um, we had to manually hold it together while I started the aircraft, and then um, and then he had to reach into the cockpit and uh, under my leg to uh, manually disconnect it um, while I was hanging out the cockpit with the engine running at about fifteen hundred rpm. So it, it was it was quite an effort, but um, but uh, it. I would basically briefed the team that uh, the stability of the plane was the, the most important thing and if we ended up uh, technically pulling out of the race um, because of something we'd done to fix the centre of gravity, that was, that was yeah, not, not desired bombing but it was more acceptable than flying an aircraft that was still um, you know, somewhat unstable. Yeah,
0: did you have yeah. any other um, aerodynamic challenges with the aircraft? I remember you telling us about a year ago that you uh, you designed this with a bunch of your uh, you know your air force mates on the back of a bar napkin or something. So
2: from from that from that <laughs> yeah, early design concept, bar napkins, um, <laughs> napkins, probably went out in about the nineteen twenties for aircraft design. <laughs> 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 for so uh, well, that's so, what you uh, told us. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I've still got, still got the bar napkins to prove it. Yeah, uh,
0: but uh, so, you, uh, uh, you know, I get I guess you know in in that in that way, what I'm getting at. Is that you know it's it's you've had challenges in other ways. Was was there any other aerodynamic sort of challenges you found through the year, or otherwise it was pretty smooth sailing?
2: Uh, other than that, it's pretty smooth sailing. We did actually also have some, um, and we still have a little bit of yaw instability um, because once again, the picture on the bar napkin shows a much smaller rudder than uh, the normal MX, which we ended up you know, putting on the aircraft. Uh, all these things did actually work; they made it they made the plane faster, um, but they also. Uh, drastically reduced its its stability in um, in pitch roll and yaw. Um, so uh, they're, they're things that um, uh, I think we we're in, we're heading in the right direction. But just because we didn't get a chance to to then uh, do some uh, tests and evaluation of what we'd done. Um, you know, it ended up being a, a real handful on the track. If we had a, had the plane for a couple of months, you know, with the uh, with its instability in pitch, we, we could have, you know, solved that very rapidly by, you know, moving the center of gravity around and changing the flight controls as we ultimately did. Uh, and with the uh, instability in yaw, uh, you know, you can put strakes and all sorts of things on the fuselage to uh, to keep the plane um yeah, you know, straighter, yeah, you know, more stable in your because rudder authority wasn't something I needed when I was racing. So, um, so uh, as I say, I think we're on the right track. It was just unfortunate we didn't get enough time to um, to work with those items um, before I actually hit the racetrack. And uh, in one particular case, literally hit the racetrack. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, yeah, well, we the, we don't want to talk the, about uh, that today. <laughs> Well, the uh, I
1: mean, an an unstable aircraft does sort of make it more responsive when you're doing aerobatics. But I guess for racing, it's you're not looking for tumbles, snaps, rolls, you know, that kind of thing. You're looking more for your uh, your straight line and and control ability, aren't you?
2: That's right. You want it. um, You want it. You don't. Well, you don't want the plane too stable because. the more stable it is the more flight control forces which you know is ultimately drag is required to make it um change direction and you know, be it in roll or uh, or pitch so having something like a 747 wouldn't be a good race aircraft because <laughs> it's, uh, the, the rate of g increase uh is um is, is not going to be there you know so basically you know, I, would, I would measure how well i was flying on um you know i had uh uh, basically telemetry trackers in the aircraft that I could i would download each flight. And um, I would like to, my rate of G application uh, was about 20 G a second. So that's that's how I knew I was flying well. It would take me about 0.6 of a second to get to 12, from, from 1 G to 12 G. So as I say, 20 G a second application rate, that's um, you know, extremely fast and you can't yep. do that with a stable aircraft. But on the other hand, you don't want the, you want it to be, you know, just, just on the stable side of unstable, if you know what I mean. So it's always going to return to its own equilibrium on its own, um, but as soon as you disturb it, it's going where you put it very easily. Uh, so that, that's kind of where we have to aim it at, whereas with an aerobatic aircraft and a really good, and in particular an airshow aircraft that you, that, you know, you want to be tumbling it all over the sky, uh, you want it to actually sit in the tumble all day, uh, you know, without having to use flight controls to keep it there. Um, so with those sorts of planes, uh, they are often just on the unstable side of, uh, of stable. And then, then you get your high-performance modern combat aircraft that are unstable, but kept stable thanks to the flight control computers. Exactly, and it's exactly yeah. the same. Uh, exactly the same principles. As, um you know you can't make a large aircraft change directions rapidly if it's if it's uh, stable.
1: Yeah. Now you mentioned that you're using uh, getting telemetry and so on. I, I understand you're using Larry Perkins'
2: data logger. That's correct. That? Yeah. So uh, Larry, Larry has been a great help for me. That um, you know, he came over and fitted it for me uh, in Perth just before the Perth race. And um, and initially, uh, you know, it was a it was almost a data overload. You know, how um, you know, lots and lots of information, and um, you know, we were struggling to figure out uh, what's an efficient way f- uh, to use the information because uh, you know you've only got limited time to to look at uh, look at the data. And then um, I'm still actually working with Larry on uh, on some some improved software specifically for me for for looking at um, looking at the data. And you know, pro- probably the most the most effective data we you know for for race debriefing specifically, uh, is just looking at the G and airspeed mm-hmm. um, uh, comparison. So I know how close I'm getting to the. you know, It's effectively like using a, um, a store warning uh, in, in the debrief because I can see, I can see graphically um, what the difference is between my G and airspeed, um, and watch how they both. Yeah, as I'm pulling G, that the airspeed's decreasing, and the G is it should be decreasing at a at a, a um a linear rate with that. Um, so so if I see that um, my G is is decreasing more rapidly than the airspeed. Uh, It means I'm backing off the G um, and I don't need to be. Or if I'm seeing the G is, uh, is, is, um, is decreasing at less rate than the airspeed, I know then that I wasn't as aggressive as I needed to be at the application. I didn't get to the lift limit of the aircraft. Um, so, so that's a that's a really good way to look at it, and then we can also look at it in, in um, development debriefing as well as what's happening with that. We've got pressure sensors all through the engine cowl, for example, so we know we know what's happening, um, you know, with uh, with the cooling system. If we're over pressuring parts of the cowl, under pressuring other parts of the cowl, um, and you know, we can modify plenums and um, and cooling systems to uh, to get a more uh, universal um, you know, cooling system going through the through the engine. So, lots and lots of information. We can use there, and uh, it's, it's um, and in fact, for my crash itself, it was a fantastic uh, debriefing tool because I could see, I could see you know, every point one of a second exactly what all my parameters were leading into the crash, so I could I could straight away see all the errors that occurred. Yeah, that's
1: that's amazing, and yeah, we've we've uh, had a quick chat with Larry. Uh, we're we're trying to organise a time to go down and uh, record an interview with him soon about the logger, uh, but that's it. Sounds like it's an impressive piece of equipment, and definitely helping you out with what you're doing there.
2: Yeah, for sure, and uh, yeah, racing is all about learning, uh, yep. and you know, the more information you can draw from when you're learning, the faster you will learn. And uh, and and Larry's Larry's tools there have definitely been uh, part of my um, my continuing uh, improvement. Cool.
1: Well, speaking of learning and continuing improvement, now last time we spoke to you, we we spoke about lessons you'd learned from from the famous uh, water touch and and how you'd learned about your own personal monitoring and your state of mind and physical health and things like that and 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 really assessing what the impacts are and distractions are of being involved in the Red Bull air race, such as media demanding your time and, and all those kind of things. So I, uh, you indicated you'd learned a lot from that. As you've just said to us today, you've learned a lot about uh, getting your aircraft stable and sorted out and you know, a bit more time to practice would have been handy. Uh, what other things have you learned here in 2010, or are those the two big areas that you've learned from?
2: Um, the, the last big area I've learned from, as well, is business management. You know, there's uh, I, um, you know, I am actually a, a small business owner um, at the moment. It's a little bit smaller than I was hoping it would be, but uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, the you know the the time management at the race, but also um, you know to be. To, to be successful in the aviation industry you really do have to be very well thought through in the business sense because um, there's you know you know there's uh you know the classic saying of how do you end up with a little bit of money in aviation you, you start with a lot so um, <laughs> yeah definitely I've definitely see that one come up and slap me in the face a number of times in the last <laughs> in the last 12 months that uh, you know I keep getting paid my uh, my um, my contract uh, to race the aircraft and and I really is like the the uh, yeah, you know, a, a two-second clip from The Simpsons with Homer Simpson. I go, you know, go woo initially, and then two seconds later, I'm going don't so, um, <laughs> it, It's it's quite amazing how quickly money can leave a bank account <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, when oh, yeah. you're racing planes globally. So, um, so <laughs> we we are actually doing a really nice job uh, of working towards a much more sustainable business model um, for the racing future. Um, and you know, that that in, that uh, knowledge and that process we're going through is, you know, you know, can still be uh, moved forward into uh, whatever domain I choose or in you know, a direction that's uh, needed to go at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was a fairly big lesson. So I'd I really say that um, you know the the uh, the three big keys of of my learning this year are in uh, aircraft aircraft uh, aerodynamic and setup, um, my personal uh, stress and um, you know, concentration manage fatigue management. And lastly is uh, business management to, to, to get a sustainable aviation model. Mm.
1: Yeah, I look, uh, I, 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 it, you don't have to be racing aircraft around the world to see money disappear from an account. Just just look at my bank account. it's It's gone before it even <laughs> got there, mate.
2: Yeah, well, often, yeah, I was, um, yeah, my, mine was just like first base where the, the bank account, everything just went through first base, but it kept going.
1: <laughs> right on going. It's, it's sort of like no wonder Australian money is made of plastic. It's Teflon coated, <laughs> straight through. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I think actually often the main didn't even get to first base. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I know what you
0: mean. <laughs> well, moving on, Matt. Uh, now, of course, it hasn't been a smooth ride this, this year for the Red Bull Air Race, and we've had some, some sad news about the race not coming back next year. But uh, even sadder than that, we also lost a, a valued race pilot uh, not long after the last race, uh, Alejandro McLean. Can you tell us a bit about Alejandro and, and how well you knew him and what sort of a man he was?
2: Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was probably the saddest thing that uh, I've been involved in a long time. Um, yeah, that it knocked me around a, a lot. Um, yeah, Alex, um, Alex was uh, fairly instrumental to me um, in my training. Um, we we did when I was doing all my aerobatic training to even just qualify to even be selected for rookie camp. So this is you know, not just to be you know, to get my super license. This is actually to do my aerobatic training. Um, we operated out of Alex's hangar and uh, in Spain and his uh, home airfield, and uh, he he just looked after us. He'd take us out for uh, dinner and lunch all the time, and, and just give us uh, constant advice on on uh, you know what what the air race is looking for in a pilot and how to you know how to best uh, get ourselves uh into the team it, it, absolutely fantastic it was completely um completely open and honest in everything he said um even to the point where uh you'd be wondering you yeah, know why is he telling me this because you yeah, know I, I could potentially take his job off him and, but he's just he's just a really nice really nice guy and then obviously I did my rookie camp uh in Spain as well His home airfield and then he uh when i got in i was um in all of a sudden i needed a race plane and he offered me his um his edge uh to to race if i couldn't find a race plane basically you know, he, he said that uh, I, I had first option on 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 using his edge if i need needed to uh when i ended up going to america with the mx i then um he had rented a house because uh, he was flying on mx as well and uh, i was over there training on the on steve jones's mx and um yeah he basically took me in and uh, I stayed at his house for about a month, and um, you know he gave me a car to drive around in. And yeah, you know, you know, I offered to pay, and he he wouldn't accept any money from me. He um, <laughs> he just really looked after me uh, very very well, and even to the stage where after my crash in Windsor, um, he was the first person um, waiting when I taxied uh, taxied in with the plane damage. He was waiting there as soon as as soon as it shut down. He was at at the cockpit making sure I was okay and keeping everyone else away from me and escorted me uh, out of there. So a uh, really wow. nice, really nice guy, absolute gentleman. Um, and yep. uh, an absolute waste for uh, for him uh, to uh, to crash and, and pass. I understand he was pretty instrumental in, uh, in in
1: shaping the Red Bull Air Race as well, and in terms of he wouldn't hold back on what he thought. He and he was pretty good at uh, at making sure everything was kept well balanced and and, and good for
2: everyone. <laughs> this must have been another race pilot that told you that, because <laughs> okay, <laughs> he's um, <laughs> yeah, he he didn't didn't hold back in the meetings in our in our um. In our private meetings it was really just the race uh, race directors and uh, and race pilots um yeah he uh, he wasn't he, he didn't hold back on what he thought was right uh, which was fantastic you know a lot of the time you know people hold back because they're they're worried about what someone's going to think of them if they say something controversial or you know they don't want to they don't want to jump in into the pan and disagree with someone rock um, the but, boat uh, yeah, he, uh, he didn't mind at all doing that. Um, if he thought it was the right thing, uh, if something needed to be said, he, uh, he would say it. And um, that's exactly the sort of person you need in aviation because um, if, if people don't speak up, you know, things go wrong.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And Matt, I was, I was going to say, and I've commented on this before from my observations at Perth, that it seems like outside of the, the heat of the race, all the pilots seem to be a fairly close-knit community. So I would assume that the community sort of rallied around uh, Alex McLean's family and team at this time?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, his, his funeral was only about 30 hours after his crash. Um, so well, it was, was a lot of time yeah it was very very quick and um but I know there was still a lot of representation at his funeral and uh, you know I would have gone had it been had it been thirty six hours um, I would have been there so uh yeah he, he, yeah there, there's there would be a lot of support there uh, there is a lot of support there and um you know, he he is part of the family here it, it really mm-hmm. was it really was a family um and the race pilots were all brothers basically so it uh, yeah it, it is. It is still hard to take, actually.
1: Yeah. yeah. the the whole The whole from watching the air race for a number of years and watching the pilots and and chatting with yourself and Nigel and Hannes. It's. It's quite clear that you're all very close, and and sure you're competing against each other, but it's a friendly competition. It's 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 not the egos and the arrogance just aren't there. It's 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 everyone's helping each other to become better because in the process it gives you a good challenge and it makes you better. It seems.
2: Yeah, it's like it's like a schoolyard, um, you know, handball or cricket. You know, it's a you know you're competitive with your mate, but uh, you're laughing a lot while you're doing it.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, and that laughter is important.
0: Yep. Well, Matt, let's move on to the subject of the uh, cancellation of next year's season and uh, what's to come. What's the current status with Red Bull? Are you aware, and, and how is it going to affect your operations, and I guess that of all the other
2: teams? As we speak, I'm still waiting to hear the the exact uh, status for 2011. As far as you know, what, what's required from the pilots? I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, there's there's options from. Uh, yeah, full-time employment of the pilots uh, and their teams to make sure that everything is developed um, as much as possible so that it's a really strong entry into 2012 wow. right through to um, basically um, go go find your job yourself a job and uh, flip them burgers <laughs> and um, and then uh dust the plane off in a year's time when we give you a call so somewhere in there is the uh, the realistic truth on uh, on what i think will happen but uh, up until the air race committee basically can redesign the structure of the race to to demonstrate its um its growth potential and uh, ability to be a profitable business uh we don't know what is going to be offered um, in the form of retention uh, during 2011 or or even uh, uh, employment requirements. You know, there's, there's a great opportunity to use uh, the pilots at the moment to um, to assist in the development because uh, funnily enough, none of the pilots have got anything planned for 2011. <laughs> <laughs> we've, well, we've all got a little bit of time that if they wanted to use us as the development, um, you know, it's very similar to the Mercury project or the Apollo program, um, you know, use the astronauts to um, to take some ownership of the of the items that are that are going to keep them alive.
0: Well, would it yeah. appear to you that there's there's still well based on what you're saying there, there's obviously still a determination as far as you can tell that it will come back in 2012, and it's just a matter of, of getting everything right and, and all that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, it, it's it's kind of yeah. The longer you leave the snowball, the more it's going to melt. But um, yeah, it was it was rolling down the hill with a huge amount of speed and it had grown quite large. So that that snowball is going to take. Quite a while to um, to lose its energy, and uh, I, I'm still very positive that um, everything's going to work out fine. And in fact, it's going to be much more exciting and um, and uh, and and bigger and faster and more entertaining uh, in 2012, um, or at least have the platform set in place in 2012 for that um, to to grow in a uh, viable manner, rather than outgrow uh, uncontrollably. Wow. Um, yeah so, so I'm still very positive about it Yeah, that said it, it, it doesn't mean it's definitely going to happen but I think everyone's intention is uh, to m- do everything they can to make it happen and if you if you combine you know, the, the intelligent people that have already you know, been involved in it to, get it to get it running and get it to where it was, uh, and then you throw in uh, the pilots that have already um, you know, been flying in the racetrack and know, the, know what risks are uh, and how to, how to set up their aircraft and all that sort of stuff, I think you'd struggle to say that it wouldn't work.
0: I think yeah. one of the problems they probably had too is just the, the timing with regard to the world economy. I mean, uh, it, the Red Bull Air Race seems to have been gaining in momentum and popularity right at the time that sponsorship dollars have probably just dried up right across the board and uh, you know I, I guess that would be a big factor there too but it looks like at least if you read you know believe enough of the commentators it looks like the world economy may be starting to pick up a little and uh, you know that may be a positive thing for Red Bull
2: yeah well, that, that's that's for sure I think um, yeah sponsorship you know I- I'd, I haven't been told specifically, but I, you know, I'd, I'd guess that uh, the sponsorship situation was one of the issues, and uh, I think the timing was probably pretty poor. Yeah, you know, once again, uh, what did I do? I chose the worst time in um, since 1929 <laughs> to uh, leave a uh, secure job in the uh, air force and launch into an aviation, yeah. self-funded <laughs> aviation career. How good was that? But um, <laughs> what were you thinking? yeah, but um but I think that uh, both the you know the timing's now improving and the business model for for the sponsorship side will improve as well. And uh, yeah, I, I think just the fact that the Air Race was called the Red Bull Air Race scared away sponsors as well. You know? uh, so so um, I think there's going to be some some large changes to the structure and the words and the branding um, to make it probably a bit more neutral. So that other sponsors can get on board as a major player rather than a uh, subordinate uh, sponsor.
0: Mm, yeah, that's an interesting. I never really thought of it that way, but it is true. And I guess when you you look at the Red Bull brand, it's it's sort of associated with extreme sports rather than mainstream. And I, you know, I guess that may be a factor too.
2: Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I think yeah, I, I often get referred to as Australia's Red Bull pilot, and uh, and yep. I'm not. I'm uh, I'm Australia's air race pilot, and. Um, yeah, if if uh, you know, I I try and go and look for independent sponsorship as, and I'm seen as the Red Bull guy, um, you know, really removes a great deal of the market for me when I'm looking for a sponsor because, uh, as you say, often you know, just having that term could you know could be associated with um, being a high risk um, high risk uh, person. Um, so it, it's, it, I think yeah. it, it, it all adds up into uh, you know every little bit adds up. So um, yeah, you know, I I think it's got a Still believe it has a massive future, and uh, the sponsorship side of things uh, it will improve uh, significantly with uh, a few subtle changes.
1: Well, it could become like the Grand Prix, where where Red Bull uh, um, has a couple of teams in there. One is Red Bull, and one is uh, Toro Rosso. Uh, exactly, kind of thing.
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and and the, uh, the the branding comes from uh, the team, like owning a team, basically, and and it, rather than it being Matt Hall Racing. Yeah, you know, it's just that I am I'm the pilot of a team, but uh, it's yeah. the team the famous part of it, and uh, and um, yeah, you know, people talk about the pilot or the driver, but it's the team that everyone is interested in.
1: Yep, no, like uh, Bro- Team Braun uh, cam- coming in, and they, you know, that was associated with the name of the person driver, you know, not not the driver, but the name of the person pushing the team and running it. But uh, yeah, they had sponsors behind
2: them. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yep. Can you tell us what you've got coming up beyond Williamstown for the? Uh, for the rest of this year and into 2011 um, around whatever you can and can't say about Red Bull.
2: Yeah, well, basically for the rest of this year, um, you know, I've got a couple of events in September uh, leading into the Williamtown Airshow, uh, and then uh, really we're going to be concentrating in October to just get the – October, November, getting the uh, race plane up and running and ha- set up how we want uh, in Australia uh, we've got a couple of private shows uh, in with the race plane uh, that we've've we've taken on through the rest of the year. Uh, but then, getting into 2011, um, we've tentatively got booked about 20 um, 20 events already in the aircraft. So, wow! What we're our, our objective next year is to get the race plane around to as many places as possible to let people, you know, touch it and see it and and just understand what you know what we're doing with aviation. To you know, once again, show people that we're not just out there flying a regular plane. Um, you know, this is a really special aircraft and and then fly it in front of people so they can see how bizarre it is to see a plane turn at 12G. It's just uh, something that <laughs> just can't until you see it. So um, that, that's kind of where we're aiming at, to, uh, to take it out and you know, show it around Australia, and, uh, and in the meantime... While we're doing that, trying to uh, to turn that small that large fortune into a small fortune, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> try, try, try and keep our head above water somehow with um, with uh, you know trying to get some sponsors on board, etc., yeah. to to make sure that um, when the race turns. On again in two thousand and twelve, where uh, we 're not bankrupt and we can still participate <laughs> yeah,
1: because that is that is the big question I've got on my mind is yeah you know, you've got all these people with teams, how are they going to keep them alive when they're not really racing and earning and putting their sponsors' names in front of everything that's
2: it's going to be a hard year, I think it's going to be a very challenging year financially yeah and uh, and i'm and I'm trying to do my best to keep the team engaged somewhat so that uh, you know everyone's still on the ball and in tune with what we're trying to achieve. Um, so that, you know, it's an easier transition back into racing when it occurs.
1: If, if there's anything we can do to help publicize what you're doing and uh, find out where you're going to be at and get people there, let us know.
2: Yeah, well uh, hopefully we're launching, a, uh, announcing the calendar in um, October sometime of, uh, of what we're doing next year and um, you know, basically we're trying to touch each state as well, so we uh, we're going to get the plane around the place and um, and uh, hopefully everyone then in Australia who wants to have a look at it will get the opportunity without travelling too far. Cool.
0: It's been a great year. Once again, we're just really thrilled at the the huge amount of time that you've given to our listeners. Uh, you know, to come and, and talk to our little show and, and bring us up to date. Uh, we really do wish you well for 2011, and we hope to see you back up and uh, back up on that podium in uh, many times in 2012.
2: Perfect. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. Really
0: appreciate it.
3: Pilots Prepare, refresh and renew at Flight City. Whatever stage of your career, Flight City makes up keeping and enhancing your skills easy and economical with their two state-of-the-art flight simulators.
4: The fixed-base simulator replicates a Boeing 777 and the full-motion simulator can be a Seminole, King Air or Citation. Trust Flight City simulators and instructors to help you train for sim checks. Prepare to fly a bigger aircraft, renew your type rating, do the jet orientation
3: training course and more. See flightcity.com.au or visit Flight City at January Cut.
1: G'day, I'm Dave Gray. Are you a new show or a relatively new show that's trying to make your podcast sound great? Then you need to listen to Podcasters Emporium, a podcast that's by podcasters for podcasters. We'd be
4: happy for you to join our community and be a part of what we call Podcasters Emporium. Join myself and James Williams we explore podcasting and all its greatness. You can check out the show
1: at podcastersemporium.com.
4: Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.planecrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts.
5: pilot Stu here from the pilot's journey podcast you're listening to playing crazy down under where it's what's down under that counts now back to grant and steve the masters of sound effects
0: Welcome back, folks, and uh, you probably noticed in the last ad break there that we've got a new sponsor, Grant, a new advertiser on the program, flightcity.com.au, and we're very happy to have them on board. Joining us on the line from Perth is uh, Richard Zanvliet, He's the CEO of Flight City, and he's going to have a bit of a chat to us about uh, what they do over there. G'day, Richard. G'day. How are you going? Good. Thanks, mate. Thanks for joining us, and uh, welcome to the show in many ways. Yes, it's good to be online. So the, uh, the simulator that you've got over there, mate, uh, tell us a bit of the history and uh, how it came to be in Australia and specifically over there in Perth.
6: Several years ago, myself and, and a couple of friends, all sort of uh, either current or ex-flying uh, chaps, as I say, um, we all got together one evening and we t- decided, well, you know, we, we wanted to do something for aviation training in Perth that hadn't been done before and we wanted to take it to the next level. So we, we looked at t- different ways to do this and eventually we, we decided on a, on a simulator. And um, from there, uh, we, we basically sort of contacted a company in Canada and, and uh, there's Flight Deck Solutions. And then uh, after about a year of negotiation, we finally settled on a 777. But we also have the 58B uh, uh, simulator, which is uh, a fully moving sim and uh, with CASA approvals. And that was designed by uh, FSAP over in New South Wales. A couple of guys there um, who are really great at what they do. So between the two sims now, we, we believe we've got a really great center. And um, we're taking pilot training to the next level here in Perth.
0: And uh, we'll get on to talking a bit about the uh, the specifics in a minute, Richard. But you're saying you're a pilot uh, yourself?
6: Well, uh, yes. I originally started in 1980 at um, sort of what was called Midland Tech then, and at Fort Avenue, which was. Right opposite uh, Perth uh, International, the old international sort of uh, airport there, which is now the domestic. And uh, in those days, all the students at lunchtime, besides uh, having a volleyball game, we would go over and and uh, ask the guys, "Can you let us in?" And they said, "Yeah, just." And we would be wandering all over the tarmac, <laughs> jumping in and out of different planes. Oh, and oh, um, good old days. That, those were the days. So oh, uh, it's yeah, no, oh, well and truly changed now. So those days, uh, we did our um, private, commercial, and senior commercial. Now it's ATPL, of course but senior commercial subjects all in a year at TAFE, Midland TAFE, or Midland Tech it was called then. And then uh, from there we did our flying at um, uh, Jandicott Airport. And uh, and that's, you know, I've been a Perth lad all all my life, but basically that's, where my flying career started, and from there I worked for a short while for a Star Charter, a, a private company doing uh, charters uh, in in a Baron B-58. Uh, so that that was exciting, and but then uh, opportunity prevailed. Um, I went and travelled, went to Europe, uh, came back, uh, met my wife, and uh, then to be my wife, and uh, <laughs> we ended up in a business, a completely different business, and then I I sort of got what's the word circumnavigated i I went around aviation rather than back directly into it and then lo and behold two years ago um basically semi-retired and i thought well you know what should we do and we thought well let's go back into flying with a simulator and and that's where we ended up today so uh, you
1: you started everything off with just a single sim, yeah?
6: Yes, yes. The uh, 58B there is a uh, fully moving CASA approved sim and um, a, a lot of guys coming in there doing uh, instrument ratings or partial, or always partial instrument ratings and also uh, learning some stuff from twin engine, um, you know, sort of because the 58B is a generic trainer and at the moment uh, we can set that up as um well, either a Baron or we can set it up as a Citation, for example, or a PC-12. So we have lots of options uh, cool. the way the instruments are, are designed on a uh, touchscreen basis. so And we have full wraparound visuals on that. And um, it's uh, beautiful visuals. Uh, people are, are, are absolutely amazed. And, and once they've flown that one, they're sort of hooked on that and they say, yeah, that, that's the way to go. The the, the main ad- advantage, for example, flying a, a twin-engine Piper Seminole is probably you know close to five hundred dollars with landing fees, mm-hmm. whereas the uh, 58B is uh, is uh, charged out at 180 dollars an hour plus GST, and then you just bring your own instructor in, and uh, so that's a considerable saving as as uh, or when compared to you know hiring the twin engine, of course. So um, so yeah, so w- we think you know we, we've done the right thing. We've we've created a, a great atmosphere in the centre. We have a briefing room. We have a, a a uh, nice reception area. We have a an actual first-class lounge area, which is uh, used for our 777 uh, briefings as well as uh, seating because that's got four recliners in there. It has uh, beautiful glossy sort of uh, walls, LCD screens, which uh, also as well as being used for briefing, which project from the 777 cockpit into, into the uh, first-class lounge. And we also in there have porthole views. There are um, portholes, so you look to the left and if you're in the 777 flying or taxiing or whatever, you actually get to see um, outside. And uh, so it's pretty good. And we've had some, you know, sort of, yeah, we've had some uh, great feedback on it and we're very pleased with it.
0: With the porthole views, Richard, I think I read somewhere on your website that you were looking at uh, doing like fear of flying courses and stuff like that is that correct
6: y- yes we uh, we do have a fear of flying course our psychologist we, we're just about to, up to update the page on the website our psychologist uh, is a lady Zoe Parry and she has her um, her centre where she does half of the course is in uh, an area called Canning Vale which is probably 10 minutes drive from Jandicott Airport and then the second half of the course is conducted at the sim centre where we uh, take up to eight people during uh, of the course eight, eight people in the course sorry uh, they go go into the briefing room, we explain the, the processes involved um, from start to finish of a flight um, and then we take them into the first class lounge, they sit there, they can actually watch what's going on and then one at a time come into the cockpit and they can see the procedures we use because we, we use the procedures as uh, as a Boeing 777 and then if they want to have a fly, we, we let them uh, jump into the seat and, and um, give them a bit of control and they, they then have a better understanding of, of the amount of training and the amount of commitment that pilots do you know to undertake their careers and and therefore it gives them a a, I think um, a a reassurance that the the guys at the front of the plane sort of you know really do put the effort in they really do concentrate on what they're doing so it's um, been a great help and uh, I I think it's a great course if someone's truly got a fear of flying, it's the way to go because having the opportunity to visit the cockpit is what we found is that gives people a, a great sense of
1: reassurance. Yeah, and post 9-11, we've totally lost that.
6: Yeah, it's, you know, even, for example, uh, a great friend of mine, Norm, Qantas captain, even if I'm on the flight with Norm, I can't even get in the cockpit anymore. So uh, those days have gone, like you said. So now now it's uh, a great opportunity for people with the 777, for example, not only for fear of flying, whether it be a, um, a flight simulator experience or, um, for example, corporate, a corporate event, it gives people the opportunity to see what it's like to jump into a uh, uh, an airline cockpit and see what the procedures and, yeah, with great feedback. We're, you know, we're really enjoying it and the feedback we're getting from, from customers is, is um, truly great. We're very happy with it.
0: And you're finding those courses are uh, being well attended, uh, well booked up?
6: Yes, they're they starting now and uh, more and more so. Um, we, we've only just started the courses and we have also doing a uh, another course, which we haven't mentioned yet, which is the Future Pilot Program, which we've designed for um, for, for young people, 14 plus, to, to attend the centre. It's basically a day course featuring about three three hours in the morning, a break for an hour for lunch and about three or four hours in the afternoon. We, again, we go through the airline career, what are options, different training options whether they go traditional or whether they try and get a cadet ship and then we um, get the the young guys to go into the cockpit they all do about 20 minutes to a half an hour we get them to do a, a takeoff uh, generally to do a circuit and then uh, land and we assess their abilities and see whether they have the ability or whether they even want to do it because sometimes you you find what we found already is that the young guys have said they want to be an airline pilot and then once they sit in the triple seven they they go for a flight and then they say oh it's nice but it's not what I thought so it's, <laughs> it's its save it saves a lot um, you know uh, a lot of yeah. heart heartache for the parents and so yeah. so yeah, yeah but it's a great uh, great training tool
0: one of the good things about that is it's it's all about building the dream and for those young people who are that age that are, are motivated to do it this is a very important factor it's a very common theme that we have on this program where we, we, we talk about you know the way the training syllabus is going and discussing people's motivation to get into flight training these days because it is so expensive and that's such a disincentive we really have to uh, encourage the young people and, and build that dream.
6: Yes, yes, definitely. We've uh, had discussions with the Royal Aero Club down at Jandicott and they're looking at uh, utilising the, the services of Flight City of course and the 777 because they have um, public uh, open days and uh, they have their future pilot sort of program there and the young guys they go there with their parents, they attend the lectures and then they get out into a, a 152, they have a look around the 152, walk around and, and the problem there is the parents can't Really see the relationship of the airline career with a, a Cessna 152, whereas um, the, the club has now mentioned that um, they're really looking at you know taking the uh, the triple seven for, for the day when they have their open days, so that they can then. The students, or, or you know, the, their potential students, can come down and have a look at it. And there's, for example, young Johnny sitting in the cockpit, uh, the parents behind, and they can say, "Oh yeah, I, c- I can understand now why there's costs involved in the dedication and the amount of work that you know the, the young young guy or girl has to do for their future." And they can see that there is you know the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> is that the way <laughs> to put it? So um, so they c- they can see what there's possibility to achieve, and, and having put them there in in the triple seven and you know, hands-on experience it gives the parents more confidence to make a you know a, a choice for them, and it gives the the young person a choice as well. You know, so uh, we we think it's a great thing, and the and the Aero Club has mentioned it to us as well that they think this is the future of training. So yes, we're, we're very pleased again.
0: I think too that uh, being out there at Jandakot, we were actually quite surprised, Richard. We we did some stats a few months ago on um, on the you know how busy it is at Jandicott and not having spent a lot of time in Perth myself, I sort of thought, well, it's a smaller city, it probably wouldn't be that busy, but it turns out that it's probably the second or third busiest uh, training airport in the country.
6: Yes, it's it's quite busy actually. You'll be surprised. So with Singapore Airlines having their training college down there and China Southern, we're actually based inside the China Southern facility, although um, not directly connected with China Southern, of course, where we just leased the premises, but it's a great facility. It's, it's right there and um, we're, we're very pleased again and with having the um, advantage of being down there at Jandicot. We looked at several options, whether to go into, suburbia or into a factory unit and then uh, um, the the people at China Southern sort of offered this this facility so you know we jumped at it and we think it's the best thing we've ever done So, and with all the different training schools down there whether it be the Aero Club or there's um, the Flight Centre there's Minovation there's uh, there's a few down there I can't even recall (laughs) them all off the top of my head so if, if I've missed someone out please forgive me but they're all great schools and they're all sort of doing their own thing all towards you know sort of promoting aviation as a whole in in, in Jandicott and um, we can see it uh, growing and, you know, we, we hope to sort of, uh, what's the word, steal some students from Melbourne <laughs> so, uh, and bring them over to WA instead. <laughs> it's uh, it's sunnier over here, blue skies all the time. So, yeah, we, we'd, love, we'd love to see some more students flying in Perth for sure.
0: Yeah, well, I was, I, I've been over to Perth a couple of times for the uh, Red Bull Air Race and it's a beautiful city.
6: Great place for our aviation and, um, again, um, what, what can I say? I'm,
1: I'm very happy with being over here and, and uh, doing it all so yeah. Well, one thing that's uh, pr- that uh, Jandicott's got that Melbourne certainly doesn't have is a uh, 737 park down there.
6: Yeah that was uh, an interesting event uh, <laughs> yeah. so um, I believe that the pilots who put it in there sort of quickly jumped in another plane and we're back in America by what the next morning or something so yeah. so yeah that was quite an event and, and it's great to have it down there so the Midland TAFE or I think it's now changed its name to Polytechnic have, have got the 737 there and um, they're for Facility. It's truly it's a remarkable facility what they've done down there now, and um, even one of the guys from from Polytechnic who, who teaches their ATPL and that he's our senior instructor with us. He's Trevor oh, cool. Matthews with over uh, five thousand hours in the triple seven at Singapore Airlines. So, <laughs> wow. we're, we're, we're very happy to have him on board, and uh, he does our uh, jet orientation course, which of course is a um, course a to um, orientate and, and to facilitate the glass cockpit. Training for um, people going towards the airlines in the future because uh, what can happen sometimes the the glass cockpit environment or the environment in general, whether it be a 737 or seven six seven triple seven, can be very overwhelming. And uh, if you're going for an interview at the airlines, I mean, you want to be best prepared as possible. And the jet orientation course is designed to do that. It's a a course that we run over um, five days and uh, you get to uh, fly in the sim two hours a day. or two hours plus whatever the case may be and one hour is pilot flying one hour is pilot monitoring and um, so we're sort of uh, very um, uh, pleased to see that course is uh, slowly but surely taking off and um, it's um, a great facilitator again for uh, you know young students or not necessarily students but these are uh, the the guys who are doing this already um, uh, commercial they probably got frozen ATPL subjects so um, it, it gives them a great insight into the glass cockpit and then the prepared for a uh, interview at the airlines is, is it's a great way to do it and, and be prepared.
0: Well, it's interesting too that you've uh, chosen the triple seven as that simulator too, Richard. Because um, there's there's a number of seven three seven simulators around, and there's an A three twenty one up on the Gold Coast. But uh, yes, the, the yes, triple, we're yes. seeing so many more triple sevens coming in and out of Australia that it's it's probably a very good uh, type to get some experience in.
6: Yeah, true, true. The um, the the seven three seven, of course, uh, w- was definitely on on our uh, choice list. But when we saw our um, well, the company uh, Flydeck Solutions in Canada um, for us to get the seven three seven. We, we would have to be um, put back of several months. So, But he said, well, look, I have a spot now for a 777. So it was a, a big choice. We, we didn't have much time. We only had probably a week to decide. We either go for the 777 or um, wait several more months for the 7-3. So we sat down, a group of us, and discussed it, and then... Before you know it, the 777, and, you know, we haven't looked back. It's been a great aircraft to fly. The simulator has you know, unbelievable visuals. We, our, our screen is a fully curved screen, which is over 10 uh, lineal metres by Very two nice. and a half, providing 225-degree visuals, and it's it's oh. so immersive. It's just unbelievable. Even uh, I, I've had a couple of chaps standing behind us when we were flying and I, I did like a 30-degree bank to the left. <laughs> and one, of, one, of them, one of them just grabbed onto the back of my seat and he says, oh, I've got to keep remembering we're not moving because the, immers- <laughs> the immersion factor is so incredible that it truly, truly a great immersive experience, the sim. So, yeah, we're very happy with its capabilities. We're very happy with, um, you know, all its functions and right through to the you know electronic checklists and flight books that we've got on there.
1: Yeah, very happy. Of course, one of the things coming up that Boeing's talking about with the 787 is that a 777 pilot would be able to transition quite easily. They've made the flight deck's. Quite similar, if, you know, naturally modernized and so on. But that's that's going to help because you'll have a triple seven sim and be able to say to people, well, this is very close to flying the seven eight.
6: Yeah, exactly. Um, we actually looked at the seven eight seven because uh, at the time of signing our contracts for the triple seven, the company had designed or had designed for Boeing the seven eight seven fixed base trainer, which they used at the Dubai mm-hmm. Air Show. So uh, we we had our options on that. But the biggest thing uh, was uh, they had the options for the um, the seat. But not the entire enclosure, so okay. that would have been another year or two away. So, so that's why we ended up with the uh, the triple seven. We were quite happy with that. But, um, but yeah, the the conversion course for the triple seven to the seven is approximately a week to ten days, I believe, from from what yep. I've read. And we, we've we've had guys coming in. Uh, there's already been a chap in from Singapore, an MD eleven guy who's flying out of Singapore. He wants to do some time in there before he goes to to Virgin. We've had a couple of guys from over east. So, so yeah. It's, it's been quite good. People are going to the, um, you know, to Virgin Australia for a, a sim sim check and uh, for a position with Virgin and they thought, well, you know, I'll come and fly, get some um, experience with a 777, get a feel of it and, you know, just get a sense of what's happening in the cockpit and, and that's pretty good because it's pretty hard to do that in, in a 7.3, of course. so Yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, you were mentioning the A320 in, in Brisbane uh, or Gold Coast. Yeah, that's a, a great sim. The guys up there have done a wonderful job, you know, So uh, any guys in the Gold Coast, for sure, call in and and see them and
1: say hi. Yeah, no, that was, the A320 sim was quite good. But look, you you touched on it briefly with when you mentioned how you can get the 58B simulator, the full motion one that can be configured as various aircraft. You you were saying it rents out at 180 plus GST and bring your own instructor, which is almost like grabbing a a Cessna 180 and things like that. But the the beauty of a simulator session is you don't have to, yeah, you fly, fly your missed approach. Well, you don't have to go around Get back in position and fly again. You just stop, rewind, fly it again. Stop, rewind. Fly it again, and for one hour you can get the equivalent of what you'd take three hours if you're out really flying. True, that that's, that's a true. brilliant thing with simulators is, is just your ability yeah. to be able to get in and simulate situations that you'd be mad to do in a real aircraft.
6: Yeah, that's right. With the triple seven, we have the same. We have the we call that the magic button. It's hidden away somewhere, <laughs> and uh, we can, uh, for example, after landing, rolling down the runway, reverses, come to a full stop. We then take the parking brake off, put the throttles halfway, then I push the magic button, and then all of a sudden you. You're at 3,000 feet, 10 miles back. <laughs> it's, it's quicker than you can than the eye can blink. You're back there, and you're doing it wow. again and again. So, and that's really a uh, what's the word a godsend for training. Because oh, yeah. you know, landing is what it's all about. It's all when it comes down to it, it's getting back on the ground, getting back yeah. safely, getting the right you know attitude, getting the right sink rates. And uh, I find a lot a lot of pilots who've only had experience in um, small propeller, you know, like the Barons or the Piper Seminoles, when they jump in the Triple Seven, it naturally it flies completely different, and and the yeah. attitude of the aircraft is completely different for a landing. So so very yeah, they they're, they're all sort of yeah they they're they're, uh, they're all very surprised. Um, at the, uh, <laughs> the nose attitude and the power and, and just, you know, how long. Because the 777, of course, takes a few seconds to spool up depending yes. on weight and uh, and you have to watch those sink rates. Uh, like Trevor, uh, the, our um, uh, jet orientation uh, trainer, you're saying that with sink rates, for example, coming into land, I- if you hit about 1,000, you've basically failed your check ride. So, you know, they like to see you between 6 and about 850, six, 600 to 850 feet, and if you if you hit 1,000, 000, you've lost your um, sim yeah. check, so yeah, yeah sim right. So yeah, so it's uh, yeah, you have to be right on the ball. They, they don't like sync rates on final approach. So, <laughs> uh, so that's the great advantage. Getting back to what you're saying, the magic button, and uh, yeah. just keep being able to do that over and over again. Um, for example, a, um, a circuit uh, in the triple seven at runway two one. By the time we touch and go, pull up, turn right, uh, go all the way around and back, you're looking at fifteen minutes so yeah 15 minutes and versus in 15 minutes you could have done three or four landings yep so yeah it's it's a great training tool of course so and not only we can you know we can push you back to five miles 10 15 or um, 15 left or 15 right and then uh, we can also alter which is great alter the weather and we can also do it night time of course so uh,
1: yeah nighttime but, uh, in a storm with a crosswind woohoo yeah. Yeah, can you so, simulate um, microbursts and things like that? Wind shear, uh,
6: wind shear, yes. But uh, of course, being a fixed base, you're not going to get that that same feel. But you, you still get the wind shear callouts. Yeah. Um, you'll also, we also have uh, TCAS, of course, and you know ground proximity warning systems. So yes, we, we've got it all. We can, especially with the TCAS, um, that's a, a pretty good training tool. So uh, we're very happy yeah. with that as well.
1: Do you have any ATC calls, or do you just run for it?
6: No, no ATC calls. We just do uh, because normally there would be two 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 Pilots doing the JOC course, and yep. the trainer Trevor would be sitting in the back, or I might be sitting next to him. I might do the ATC calls for okay. them. But it's this is not so much. We 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 try not to make this uh, a theory course. We try and make it a hands-on practical course, and, and um, so that because uh, we're not so much worried about their radio work at this stage. Um, we're, we're you know trying to get them up to speed on the glass cockpit and their and yeah. their flying and and their you know sort of handling of the throttles and and um, all that sort of thing with Regard to to uh, you know promoting and and getting their sim check ride done and their sim assessment. So yeah, we're that's. So how, how we sort of run the JOC course. There's yeah, not so much theory, more practical, which I think is a good thing sometimes. Sometimes yep. we need a bit of practice.
1: <laughs> Definitely.
0: Well, that all sounds wonderful, Richard. Uh, before we finish up here, mate, uh, tell us about the packages uh, that you've, you've got there, just some of the packages that you've got going for the, you know, the average guy that just wants to come off the street who's perhaps never flown before.
6: Yeah, we have our flight simulator experiences, we call them, and um, we have everything from a 30-minute 60, uh, 90 and two hours. For example, wow. a thir- 30 minute experience flight with us we'll put you in the uh, in the captain's seat, we'll get you to taxi the aircraft out to the uh, holding point and then we'll jump on the runway, we'll do a takeoff and probably get two two good circuits done, you know, with a touch and go and then a final land and then taxi back to the gate and then, or, or for example, a 60 minute flight. Uh, some people love the 60 minute flight which seems to be our most popular. We might do a, uh, for example London to Paris or Los Angeles to San Francisco flight, which is very Ooh. popular. And um, 90 minutes, uh, 90 minute flight might be, for example, Sydney down or Sydney up to Brisbane, sorry. And we might throw in a bit of weather or we might take off very, very early morning. So it's almost dark and, and then come, you know, when it's daylight or go the opposite way, take off when it's dark and arrive when it's, or oh, the other way around, sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> the other way. But uh, yeah, or for example, we've even have people who do 90 minutes or two hours of just circuits and they're, they're just happy to do circuits and, wow. and just fly at their favourite airport, whether it be, you know, the old, you know, sort of uh, Kai Tak, yeah. which is the old old Hong Kong uh, Runway 13 yeah. or um, the, what they call the Kana Sea approach into uh, New York, which is quite a difficult one, which is very similar to uh, the Kai Tak. So okay. we even have people wanting to fly around Mount Everest. So um, so we, we take off from Kathmandu, although the 777 in theory can't do that, but <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll make the odd exception and um, we, still, we still manage to get it off the runway. <laughs> Uh, landing is a bit difficult, but, uh, yeah, the flight around uh, uh, Everest is great. And, yeah, the feedback from um, the public has been unbelievable. Um, the, 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 they all say the same thing. The views are incredible and, and the cockpit, the way it lights up and uh, it, it's just, you know, unbelievable. It's a total immersive experience. Very, Yeah, the public's re- reaction is uh, very good. We're very happy with that.
0: Excellent. Well, cool. we'll have to make sure, Grant, that we get over there and have a visit. Not, not like we really need an excuse to come to Perth, but uh, we'll have to put that one on the list. I think I think coming
1: over and hanging out for a day or two at Jandakot is definitely on the cards now. No, that's that's awesome. It's great because you can you can bring in the public for their uh, the fair of flying courses. You can bring in the public for a, a go at flying an airliner, and then you've got for pilots uh, you can come in and, and brush up on either a flying a twin around and doing your ILSs and so on or uh, your instruments or you can go for the whole hog and see what it might be like if you want to be an airline pilot so that's awesome stuff
6: we're just uh, ecstatic with the with the sim and uh, the sim centre and the, re- the reception we're receiving from people it's it's great here in Perth and we like to thank you guys Grant, Steve and uh, anytime you're over in Perth no worries come for a flight um, so uh, and we'd like to um, donate a flight so if you want to have a competition uh, we'd oh, like awesome. to donate a flight um, for an, an hour flight with a DVD um, I'll let you guys make up some competition and
0: um, so yeah, it's up to you. That's very right. generous of you mate and we'll uh, we'll put our heads together and work out a, a good way to promote that for you. The yeah, uh, phone awesome. number over there in Perth <laughs> is uh, 08 of course 941 uh, They're in Eagle Drive at Jandacourt Airport which is the uh, the main street there that's parallel with the runway and uh, flightcity.com.au and you're on Twitter as well Richard?
6: Yep yep on Twitter that's Flight City Perth
0: yep. There you go excellent so. mate well uh, we really appreciate you uh, sponsoring us here on the program and uh, we look forward to talking to you again very soon no
6: worries thank you guys
4: I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall.
2: No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall.
4: Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop.
5: Hello, I'm Matt Hall.
3: Well, howdy. I'm baggage handler Chuck Armstrong from JuniorFly.com. When I'm not sending your luggage donation to Siberia, I'm listening to Stephen Grant from Plain Crazy Down Under. I know they could use a donation. I think I'll send in your bags.
4: You might have seen the Red Baron performing daring aerobatic feats over Sydney's magnificent beaches. Now it's time for you to see the world from the Red Baron's point of view. Whoa, probably upside down. Go to redbaron.com.au to find out more about scenic tours and aerobatic flights with the Red Baron. You could fly in the Pitt's special open cockpit biplane, the Red Bull stunt plane, or the new Gippsland air van. To find out more or to book your flight, phone 97910643 or go to redbaron.com.au. Hi, it's Rob Mark from Jetwine.com and the Airplane Geeks. And whenever I'm in Australia, I listen to those two crazy Steve and Grant at the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast. Of course, I'm not really in Australia that often. But if I were in Australia often, I would I'd have no hesitation at all recommending Steve and Grant's show to anyone who had very little to do with their time. of course, actually, I've never even been to Australia. Playing crazy down under. Don't leave home without them.
0: And welcome back, folks. Now, uh, about two weekends ago, I was out at uh, the Packenham and District Aircraft Radio Control Society uh, field out there. At, uh, it's actually just behind the uh, the township of Cardinia, which is uh, sort of at uh, about 50 kilometres to the southeast of Melbourne. And they've got a, a lovely little uh, remote control aircraft field that's uh, set aside there, a wonderful facility. They've got all sorts of uh, little sheds and hangars and uh, club rooms and all sorts of stuff out there. It's just on a little out-of-the-way property and a really great setup. I've been out there a few times before. In fact, one of the... Uh, one of my workmates is quite active on the committee there. So cool. uh, he made me aware of uh, the Victorian Flying Scale Aircraft Association's Victorian Championships that were being held down there. So uh, I uh, packed up the car with camera and with my son and we trundled out there. It was a beautiful day. So I spoke to three gentlemen out there, John Lamont, Noel Whitehead and David Law. Now, uh, really interesting to see what they were doing. They had all sorts of uh, really uh, well presented, uh, in fact, immaculately presented uh, scale aircraft of varying different types, which we'll hear about during these interviews. And uh, Noel Whitehead was pointing out to me in particular because he's not only done judging of these aircraft championships here in Australia but also recently overseas, I believe in Poland. Cool. Uh, so and interesting stuff. So we'll cut to those three interviews now and uh, have a listen and see what you think. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Okay, I'm standing here at the uh, Vic Scale Championships out here at uh, Pekin, and we're here with uh, David Law. You're the president of the association here?
3: Yep, that's correct.
0: Oh, yeah. Welcome to the show, mate, and I believe you've just come back from overseas from the World Championships.
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, the World Scale Championships, which is referred to as F4C, was held in a town called Czesna uh, in Poland, so it's about an hour and a half from Krakow. Um, it, was, um, it was specifically just for scale aircraft. And um, I managed to place fourth in that competition, which right. I was
0: fairly pleased about. And what sort of an aircraft were you uh, flying on that
3: I occasion? was flying a PIT Special S2A, which is an aerobatic aircraft. Right. And the full size that I built my model from is based at um, Moorabbin Airport. Right. Yeah. Whereabouts, is, whereabouts in the airport is that at Moorabbin? Um, it's, it's with the Oxford Aviation Academy. Oh, at Oxford, uh, OK. Yeah, yep. and... Um, oh. And, um And I... I some of the fellows down there helped me out tremendously in particular um, John Walsh um, okay I know John yep. you know John yep. yeah yeah. He, he was fabulous with giving me access to the aeroplane and yep. getting all the invita- information I needed um in that particular class of modelling, um, you're really in a position where you, you hand-build absolutely everything, including doing your three-view drawings and photographs and putting together the documentation. So yeah. um, I just I just wouldn't have got as high up as I did without their assistance. Um, I was in third place at the end of the second round and slipped down a little bit, unfortunately, in the third round. But uh, yeah. you know, it was the first competition for the model, and um, I'd only had about 15 flights on it. So hopefully with a bit more practice... Yeah, um, I think the pitch right is challenging
0: there. enough to fly, in,
3: uh, in the real world much less doing it in a SCAR model <laughs> yeah, it can be I, I really enjoy flying the aeroplane um, but it's not as easy to do precision aerobatics with the pits as it would be with an extra 300 or an H540 or yeah, something like that. Yeah. So
0: it's a bit more challenging. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The aircraft you've got here that we're standing next to is yeah. a, uh, your aircraft, it's yes, a uh, Spitfire. Yeah.
3: yeah, it's a Spitfire Mark VIII. Um, it's a replica of Clive Caldwell's Spitfire that he flew out of Moratai during World War II. Um, I was actually inspired to build it after reading a book on Clive Caldwell, um, and it's um, one-quarter scale. Once again, it's, it's completely scratch-built. Uh, it's all made out of balsa and plywood and, and fibreglass. Um, it, it has a, it's, uh, it's roughly about a 2.8-metre wingspan. Um, it weighs about 22 kilograms, and it's powered with an 85cc petrol engine.
0: Right, and it's this petrol engine that uh, we just talked to the gentleman before, he's saying it's four-stroke, which surprised me. This
3: one's actually not. This is a two-stroke. That's a two-stroke, But right. there are four-stroke petrol engines for models now, and they're, they're absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you know, We get scored for realism of noise, and, right. and when you use a petrol four-stroke, you, there's almost no comparison. Right, Yeah.
0: Right. So how long have you been uh, in the, in
3: the uh, SCAR model flying game? Obviously, if you're going to World Championships, yeah. you've been doing it for a while. Uh, about 30 years. Right, Yeah, I've been years, doing yeah. it since I was a kid, and, um, I've been to, I've been to four world championships now, um, and each time I do a bit better, so that's what you really want to achieve. Yeah. Um, but previously I'd competed with a vampire jet, um, right. which has had a gas turbine in it, and, um, I thought it was about time to try a new aeroplanes, so yeah, hence yeah. I've built the pits. And,
0: um... The, uh, the, the SCAR model and remote control aircraft seen in Victoria and around Australia, is it uh, quite popular? Do you see it in, gaining in popularity? or
3: It's, it's probably um, losing in popularity a little bit and, and the reason for that is you can buy what we call ARFs now, uh, almost ready to fly, and that's a lot of what you see here, so the skills are being lost unfortunately on building model aircraft. Most kids who come in now buy something that's already finished out of and take it out of a box, screw in their servos and their engine, and off they go. Mm. Um, in, in the case of um, in Europe, this type of aero modelling is still very popular, the, mm. the scale building, um, but here not so. Uh, scale is is popular. I'm finding that People like to fly in displays and air shows, but they don't like being judged, so a lot of them don't compete, yeah. but I've, I think that's a case of society in general nowadays. Yeah, it's a shame, it's all judged. part
0: of it, if you're going to go to all the uh, trouble of doing a competition, you'd think judging yeah. would be part of the
3: challenge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we have enough to keep it going, and we're trying hard to inspire younger guys. But, you know, I'm one of the youngest, and I'm 42. Right. So, you know, we've got one other guy here today, Matt Bailey, who is in his teens. and uh, We just need a lot more of them. Yeah, Because and we might when, have a chat to him before we go. Yeah, when these guys move on, there's not going to be many people around to pass down the skills. Yeah. And how many of these sort of events would you hold as an association during the year? Yeah, we, we run pretty much two a month. Right. So there's, there's an abundance of flying competition if you want to fly. Um, A serious competition like this where they're having the static judging and so forth, there's probably three a year. So there's the state champs early in the year. We have a big competition in and on Queen's birthday weekend. And then we have our nationals, which could be anywhere around Australia. Yeah, right.
0: You see a lot of the, uh, um, not far from where I grew up, they had a control line field. Uh, Is that something that's sort of in with what you guys do or is that a different Um, sort of...? uh
3: it's a, diff- it's a different discipline. Um, there is still control line going on at our local club. It's I, I fly normally at Doncaster, not right. with this size of aeroplane, but I normally fly there, and uh, there's a, a good contingent of control line flyers there. Um, internationally, in scale, control line has almost died out to the point where they're struggling to run it as an event. Um, you know, everybody seems to be into the radio control. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, really interesting, uh, it's fascinating coming out here. I come out here from time to time just to yeah. have a look around, but uh, to see these championships and the, the work that's yeah. gone into it's is obvious. So uh, I appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks for All talking right, to us. Thank it. you. Yeah. So I'm just standing out here now with the uh, Vic Scale Championships out here uh, just behind Pakenham near Cardinia, and I'm, I'm with uh, John Lamont. John, uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Oh, you're
5: welcome. It's the state championship, actually, it's the Victorian state championship. <laughs> we, we have a number of different uh, scale competitions and um, but the state championships are, have a uh, what we call large scale which is a, a model that's a uh, minimum wingspan in the a, a case of a, bi- a monoplane of 80 inches, right. talking in the old terms it's 200 metres anyway and uh, if for a biplane it's got a minimum of 66 inches although these biplanes of course are much bigger than that uh, and that's large scale then we have another uh, another event which is run to international rules which is for lack of anything better it's called F4C that's the international run- competition run by the FAI in France and uh, it constitutes a world championship event natural fact too, but every country runs their own F4C championship as well. And that's a fairly highly highly detailed, fairly complicated competition where the air- aircraft are very tightly judged for the uh, construction, the detail that's on them, the finish on them, and uh, extremely closely inspected. The judges sort of come up with a amount of metre of them and look at them in great detail. So, fair, what,
0: what, And when you say what they're looking at, what are they looking at, the, the presentation of the aircraft, the, the de- well, attention yeah, to detail?
5: We, we have two sections. We have a, what we call a static section, which is just the aircraft as it sits, and then we have a flying section, which is the way the aircraft performs in the air. Uh, this, the static section is just, uh, a, we present the judges with a set of um, three-view drawings of the, ostensibly, of the aircraft that we've modelled, and details of the colour scheme that we're using, which should be in, in line with a, a full-size aircraft of, uh, of the same same aircraft. And the judges then decide how well you've adhered to the shape, the outline, the um, colouring scheme, the detailed decoration of it, and they allot a certain number of points um, for that. totals up to about 3,000 points in actual fact, and then we have a a flying section where we have three judges sitting out there and judging the maneuvers that we do. Again, that totals to 3,000 points, so the competition is pretty evenly broken up between static and flying, so your airplane has to be fairly accurate to scale. Look reasonably good, and you've got to be able to fly it, and you've got to be able to fly it in the manner that the full-size aircraft flew. So, if you're flying a um, an aerobatic aircraft such as some of these extras of these sort of things, you do fairly dramatic aerobatics with them. Uh, if you're flying a Spitfire, you fly the way a Spitfire would fly, maybe in an air show. Um, if you're flying one of these things, which is just a home-built aeroplane, it just sort of tootles around the sky doing very little, in actual fact, but yep. just giving enjoyment to the guy that built it. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, this, this aircraft of a Spacewalker, and uh, it's, it's an, an American home built aircraft built quite widely all around the world and a uh, uh, very, simple, very simple aircraft and, and quite a simple model to build but you know, it's just a matter of how much detail you want to put into them. And what scale would that be John? It's scale of three and a half inches to the foot which is just in between quarter and a third. Right. You know, the, uh, so the full size aircraft is not very big when you see that, I mean that's, that's 90 odd inches wingspan and uh, so the full size aircraft is... Um, about 28, 29 foot wingspan, I think something in that order. And I've got to ask you, when you
0: send it up there, is the uh, the little Kendall uh, sitting in the pilot seat? Does he go for the ride every time? Or?
5: Oh yeah. Well, one of the requirements is you must have a, uh, a pilot in the aircraft when it's flying. Oh, interesting. Visiting, and if he's visible in the sort of, if he's visible in the, in the in the aircraft, he must be visible to the judges as well. So you and he he needs to be reasonably scale-sized. That guy's just a little bit undersized, but some pilots are big and some pilots are small, so that doesn't really matter too much. But yeah, he he sits in there. He's not a Ken doll. He's a a, a pilot model. There are some quite elaborate pilot models around. Um, Some of the guys build their own, but uh, there are a few specialists around the world that uh, manufacture scale model pilots. If you have a look at the Spitfire, you'll see a very well-detailed pilot in that wearing the appropriate World War uh, II flying, uh, flying
0: outfit. And uh, the, the attention to detail for the pilot's outfit, is that part of the judging? Or is no,
5: it it for, it's for not. A, a, in this sort of type of competition, it's not. No, you, you, It's just a requirement to have a, a, a pilot, and some, some pilots were pretty good, some pilots don't. Some people put some funny dolls and things in there, which yeah. aren't, aren't appropriate, but they satisfy the rules as though, such as they are. But um, if it was a question of um, the F4C competition, then the pilot would be judged as well, and the, the detail yeah. you, worked, you put into the pilot would be included in the... Uh, into judging,
0: now, it's obviously a labour of love for you, John. Uh, how many hours would have gone into building this particular aircraft we're looking at? now? Uh,
5: it's hard to tell because it's, you know, that, that particular aircraft I built in 1998 has been around for a long time. It's been crashed a couple of times and rebuilt, so <laughs> you know the total hours are probably quite big. But I guess you're probably looking at uh, say about six months' work and uh, six, uh, something six or eight months' work to build one. And uh, I suppose you'd have to look at um, you know two or three, three or four hours a day, sort of averaging on that. So. If you look at that, um, three or four hundred, three or four hundred hours, or something in that order, I suppose, is the uh, just just for a basic aeroplane. If you get to some of the more complex ones, of course, you can put thousands of hours into them. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Guys do put that sort of time into them. Um, but that's, that's a pretty basic aeroplane. That's not a not a difficult build.
0: Yeah. Tell us about the engine that you've got in there. Uh, what sort of fuel does it run on, for instance? Yeah, it's
5: a glow plug engine. Um, it's which means plug, it has a heated plug. A plug in that's similar to a spark plug. It has a platinum coil, heated platinum coil. In it which requires a battery to start up, but once it's running, the, ignition, the heat of the ignition and the uh, the fuel that you use, a chemical reaction with the fuel that you use, and it's enough to keep the little, little coil alight, and that fires it between cycles. The engine itself yeah, a two-cylinder horizontally opposed four-stroke. Okay, um, four-stroke, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, a lot of the guys use four-strokes. They're quite common now. In fact, you should probably find the majority of these aeroplanes around here have got four-stroke motors in them. They, um, they're pretty reliable and they sound very nice. That's the real thing about them. The average two-stroke revs very high. You know, yeah, they, they'll yeah. run 15,000, 16,000 revs and they tend to be a bit, get a bit screamy. don't sound very realistic. These things will run about 8,000, ten thousand 10,000 revs and they sound fairly realistic. And they'll also turn off quite a large propeller. They've got a lot of torque in them and they'll turn off quite a big propeller, which is an advantage on these, size, these types of aeroplanes.
0: And... Uh a bit about uh, yourself and the organisation here at Vic Scale. Um, can you tell us a bit about what? Yeah, well, VicScale Vic
5: Scale is a um, is a group of um, enthusiasts, I suppose you could call it. It's, it's not a club; it's just an association, and it, it draws its members from all the model clubs around Melbourne. Uh, people who have a common interest in flying, building, and flying scale models, and they uh, they gathered and joined the and joined the VFSAA to um, just to mingle and uh, with, with their fellow scale enthusiasts and to fly in the competitions that we run. Um, we run competitions probably almost twice a month and right throughout the year, so we keep fairly active. We, uh, we don't have a flying field as a club, we don't have a flying field of our own, so we, we rely on the goodwill of most of the clubs and we ask them if we can use their field for the day and run one of our events, at which the local club members are always welcome to attend as well if they're, if they're interested in flying scale competitions. But um, So when we travel all around Melbourne, we travel all around the state really, we go up to uh, Albury, we fly in Ballarat quite regularly. We uh, Fly a quite regularly. We travel travel around quite a bit. Yep. Um, just spreading the um, you know the interest in scale. That's all.
0: Yeah, yeah. And are you a pilot yourself, or as many of the people in there you know have? Pilots no, not, not many
5: people actually fly. Um, the guy that was flying the biplane as a as a, a pilot. Um, but uh, no, most of the guys aren't. I, we're all probably frustrated pilots, I suppose. You yeah, we'll it, join you know. the club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we've, all got, we've all just got an interest in aviation, and, and this yeah. is as close as you can get to flying without being uh, being able to fly a real aeroplane, a full-size aeroplane. The, the aeroplanes fly the same as a real one, and uh, they're actually quite quite difficult to fly in some respects because um, a real aeroplane when you get into it you've sort of got a feel for it Mm. and you've got a horizon there and you can see where you're going and what you're doing with these things once they get up in the air it's a question of eye and hand coordination you've got to look what's your aeroplane and then you move your hands according to whatever your aeroplane is about to do you've really got to sort of second guess your aeroplane.
0: I mean, one thing that's always interested me about scale model and remote control is uh, it's all right, fair enough, if the aircraft is flying away from you, but when the when it's coming towards you, I guess you've got to reverse all your control inputs, isn't it? Uh, right? Yeah,
5: well, you don't have to reverse all of them, but uh, but you, you do have to remember that um, you know, your rudder goes the other way. Your elevator, of course, still goes up and down. That's yeah, of course, yeah. But your ailerons and your rudder are the ones, and you, you do have to remember that when it's coming towards you, if you push right, it'll go that way, or <laughs> well, this way, in actual fact. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, but that becomes second nature. It's really just a matter of practice. And that's actually what is one of the difficult things for full-size pilots, a lot of guys that, we have a lot of people that are, have, are or have been full-size pilots who come along and decide they want to fly models when their flying career gets near an end. And uh, I've heard a lot of them say that it's much more difficult to fly these things and to learn to fly these things than it is to fly a real aeroplane. I, imagine. I think largely because of this coordination and the fact that you know, you're you a bit disoriented when the aeroplane's flying towards you. Yeah, 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 it would throw me out.
0: Well, John, it's a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for spending some time. um, Yeah, you're welcome. And uh, we hope to see uh, your plane uh, flying up later. Okay, I'm out here with uh, Noel Whitehead. Now, Noel's uh, not judging today, he's been flying, but uh, Noel, you've uh, got quite some experience with international judging for uh, scale aircraft. Yeah, I've judged the the flying
7: side of the last two world championships. Um, Before that, I I flew in about seven or eight. And uh, they asked me to
0: judge a couple of years back, and yep. I did it again this year. Yeah. And uh, what were the most recent uh, ones that you did, the most recent championships uh, that you uh, judged? The most recent one was
7: in August this year, just a couple of months back, right. uh, in Poland. Um, the previous one was in Poland. Um, the previous one, which I flew at, was in Sweden, and the previous one, to that I flew out, was in Poland again. Poland mm-hmm. loves them for...
0: Reason, it seems to be that uh, the Europeans really, uh, really take to this scale model aircraft with uh, quite some vigour. They do. because they've, they've got a
7: they've got a number of circuits. I mean, the, the British have got their own fairly um, I don't know what's the word extensive uh, scale circuit in their own country, and then there's the European circuit, and there's you know each country has their own championship, and, and there's. Continental Championships, so they've got a lot of flying they can go to in a, in a
0: relatively uh, small area. Yeah. Well, before we talk about the uh, what's involved in the technicalities of judging, uh, we were just uh, watching your Corsair fly around the pattern here. Can you tell us a bit about that aircraft and how much work went into it? Uh, that that
7: Corsair is a it's a top-flight kit, um, slightly amended, but not very much. Um, but there's a lot there's a lot of work because. Top Flight is one of the old style kit manufacturers where uh, you just get a box full of wood, literally. Um, and it took, I guess, about nine months to, to build it on and finish it. Uh, I had a few issues in the middle of that. but uh, And it's sad that it's just not very accurate because it doesn't score very well. Flies flies all right, but it, it doesn't uh, score well statically. Yeah.
0: Now, we saw you uh, flying around the pattern, but uh, interestingly, we've just been watching it. It's been up on a table here, and uh, a couple of gentlemen have been judging it, uh, doing a static judging. What are they looking for in in terms of detail? What they're looking for is,
7: um, in the first instance, accuracy to the... uh, Each each person has to supply a kit of documentation. uh, And principal in that is photos and three-view drawings. Uh, against which the accuracy of the the model is is judged. So they go around on the the, the side view, the plan view and the front view and and, and pick any discrepancies (laughs) and mark you down for that. Um, Then there's the colour and markings. You also have to supply documentation for that. So they have to pick on a a particular aircraft and demonstrate that you've modelled that aircraft and that the colours and markings are the same as... Is on the original. And finally, I think craftsmanship, how, how well they've put it together and how how close the hinge gaps are and, and things like that, just the general quality of finish. That sort it's of
0: stuff. interesting that um, you're saying it's, it's not a, a great representation in, you, in your view, but for, for the layman like myself, it looks um, near on perfect.
7: It, it, it looks like a, a Corsair. There's no doubt about that. You couldn't mistake it for anything else. But when you set it up and, and look at the, the documentation... Uh, there are some quite obvious discrepancies. Mm,
2: yeah. uh,
0: now, in your experience as a judge in, in these competitions, and particularly at international level, uh, when they're out flying around in the pattern, what are they? What is the the standard? Is there a set routine that everyone's expected to do, or is but, there like a freestyle competition? Or?
7: No, it's not. It's not freestyle at all. Um, there are, there's ten maneuvers. That constitute a flight. Four of those are compulsory. Two of them, of course, being takeoff and landing, which um, are scored and have a, a very heavy weighting in the overall score. Um, there's the other two compulsory manoeuvres are a descending 360-degree circle or whatever and a flat figure eight. Everyone has to do that, regardless of what aircraft they have. Beyond that, there's you, you pick six, essentially from a list of manoeuvres that you're given. Um, Some some of the manoeuvres are reserved for non-aerobatic aircraft uh, and and others intended for aerobatic aircraft, so you you have to pick the appropriate manoeuvres. Um, The poor non-aerobatic aircraft don't have a very big choice. uh, It's it's much easier to find a a good set of manoeuvres for the aerobatic
0: ones. Um, do you find, for instance, now you're saying there's obviously different types of aircraft, do they split them into categories for the competition or is everyone judged on its merits as it comes out? Uh, the, only,
7: the only categories are aerobatic or non-aerobatic. Right. Uh, in fact, every aircraft is assumed to be aerobatic unless you can prove that it wasn't. But but that's the only split. Um, but given that, you're still expected to do manoeuvres that are appropriate to your aircraft. Yeah. You, um, yeah, you wouldn't be doing launch with a with a World War One model or anything like that. Yeah. So, so you are trying to uh, recreate how the original would have flown if you can work that out. So you you pick maneuvers that are appropriate and you fly the maneuvers in the way the original would have flown. Them. I, I mean, think of a loop. Um, aircraft from different eras did loops in different ways because the power they had, a a Tiger Moth can't do a a, a perfectly circular loop whereas a a modern jet fighter can. So you you take that into account, you take the aircraft capabilities into account but you don't, but not in the selection of manoeuvres so much It's interesting. Just looking up here it looks like we've got a warbird flying over, a, a real one. That's a mustang who's that is I don't know it might only be uh, it could be Jim Wickham it, it could be Jim Wickham it is That's
6: yeah.
0: me uh, eight three
7: quarter
5: one yeah it's Wickham yeah. we've had Jim Wickham on the show before have you yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. great bloke
0: okay so um, just uh, finishing up here um, I notice there's a lot of uh, not a lot of kids here uh, being involved in the sport how do you, 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 you you've have noticed this? that right? yeah. <laughs> um, I was trying to put that diplomatically <laughs> <laughs> um
7: there aren't and it's a different world from the one we were brought up in where, where everyone here sort of had to make their own entertainment when they were kids we didn't have the computers or the, the video games or anything like that and and even the, the modelling scene is different now because you can go out and buy a virtually complete aircraft and fly it the next day you couldn't do that when we were growing up um, and the sad thing is that uh, the kids just don't have the building skills anymore. But, I, I mean, I know my kids, I've got three kids, and I don't think any of them knows which end to hold a hammer. Yeah. They, they, they just don't have it. Yeah. Uh, because they've, they've had different entertainment.
0: Well, one of the things we like to do on our show is to encourage uh, the younger folk to, to get in, involved in all their uh, facets of aviation. Yep. So... Uh, we certainly recommend that uh, they come down here and uh, check out what they're doing. It's a wonderful facility they've got out here at, uh, at Oh, It's a fantastic club, this one. That's yeah. uh, the, the pick of the Victorian clubs, and, and I haven't seen a better
7: one in Australia, quite frankly. Uh, it's a Apart from the fact that it's very wet today.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a bit uh, a bit wet underfoot. Uh,
7: it's, a, it's a magnificent facility. You can see there's three runways. Um uh, you can take any wind direction into account and you can take any sun position into account.
0: Um, and the clubhouse and the kitchen and the toilets and everything. It's just beautiful. It's a good facility. Yeah. Yeah. We should get out here more often. Well, I appreciate you spending some time with us. Okay. And uh, we'll hope to talk to you again sometime All in the right, future. I'll keep up the good work then. Thank you. Yeah, so there you go, Grant, and I'll just point out the two websites there that uh, are involved here. The first one for the Pakenham District Aircraft Radio Control Society, that's a bit of a mouthful, Uh, that's at PDARCS, P-D-A-R-C-S. Dot com dot au so papa delta alpha romeo charlie sierra.com.au and you can have a look there make sure you get out to their next uh, flying day I think they have them most weekends and uh, they've got a really great facility out there and I just wanted to thank the all the people out there they were you know, I just sort of turned up with the, with the recording gear and the camera and uh, they were very very welcoming and very accommodating to me so I really appreciate uh, the hospitality the uh, victorian flying scale aircraft association can be found at vFSAa.org. So uh, check out that website there and you'll be able to find out information on when the next uh, scale model championships are coming up and uh, some of the skills that these guys have to demonstrate. You know, the thing that always interests me, Grant, about uh, remote control aircraft is the control inputs because I guess once you've got the aircraft turned around and coming back towards you, then you've got to make all your uh, control inputs in reverse.
1: Yeah, it's really weird that it really is. It, it's it's a big thing to get used to, just, just remembering that you want it to go to the left, so push it to the right. Huh? It's, it's, it is odd. But, uh, yeah, the, the guys who you know what they're doing are, are spectacular to watch, especially I was having some problems with my helicopter one time, couldn't quite get it right, and uh, the guy who was giving me some pointers said, here, I'll show you, and he just picks it up picks up the, the um, remote unit from me and starts throwing it around the sky. I'm, I'm, like, suitably embarrassed. I was like, yeah, great. Okay, so it's not the, uh, not the helicopter, it's the loose nut on the end of the controls.
0: <laughs> there you go. Like so many other things in Flying Grant.
1: Yeah. Or, or computers. Problem exists between keyboard and chair. Yeah, that's right.
0: Well, I think that's probably just about everything we've got coming up. I think uh, well, there's somebody coming down the street. He must be getting rather wet. Oh, I think so. Hey, has he got one of those new submersible bicycles? He must do. Uh, I tell you what, he'd almost need a submarine to come up my street at the moment. <laughs> List of mail, list of mail, Grant, got uh, quite a bit of list of mail this week, but uh, time's running a little bit short, so we'll just mention a couple of the uh, more prominent ones we we really wanted to make mention of in this episode. The first one came in just the other day to our email uh, address here at uh, under at gmail.com, of course, and it's from Peter Baxter, and he writes, uh, Hi Grant and Steve, only recently found your podcasts via the US guys, so yeah, it's good to know, and he said he's enjoying them, so that's great, enjoyed our Dick Smith episode, uh, so that was really good. Now, um, without going into too much of the uh, the details of the email, he uh, one of the things he suggested." that we might consider is uh, doing an episode where we talk to some people about aircraft engine maintenance. And uh, so we just wanted to acknowledge that. And uh, we've got to tell you, Peter, we think that's an excellent idea. Now, we've been in contact with uh, Qantas Engineering. uh, And Grant, I think you've sent some emails off to some other areas as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I've uh, I've gone through the official channels with Qantas there. Uh, We may not be able to get an official discussion with a Qantas engineer, but we have a few other options up our sleeves for getting people from uh, the engineering background who are able to speak about... uh, Knowledge will be about jet engines and time on wing and, uh, and issues such as that.
0: Yeah, so uh, we don't know how long it'll be now of course, um, you know, some of these uh, organisations, particularly Qantas, are a little bit cautious about uh, making sure that they get exactly the right people and, you know, they're a little bit worried, I guess, about uh, any sort of adverse media attention. Of course, new media is uh, new to them, even newer than it is to, to most other people, so <laughs> it might be a little while, but uh, they, they didn't say no, they wouldn't talk to us, but it might just be a little while, but uh, Peter, we're going to uh, certainly follow up on some of the suggestions you made in that uh, very detailed email that you sent us. We really appreciate that, mate, and, uh, you yeah, know, we'll certainly. Be onto it.
1: Yeah, it was great. The uh, questions that he posed about uh, four engines versus two and uh, difference in takeoff thrust versus cruise thrust and so on. And yeah, I was looking at it going, I think I get that. And when I went to write a reply to him, I realized I don't get it at all. So <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. It's it's really good. It's, it's an itch I need to scratch now and uh, I will have to track someone down that we can chat to.
0: Okay, Grant, and the second one we've got here comes from uh, Alex James. Now, Alex is uh, living in China, which is really interesting, and we're hoping cool. to be able to talk to Alex soon about uh, what it's like to fly over there, what the state of the uh, industry is. Uh, Alex points out in a couple of emails that he sent us that he's a uh, long-time commercial pilot, holds a commercial licence. I don't think he's flying over there at the moment. In fact, I believe he's doing teaching. Yes. Uh, and we had a couple of uh, lively uh, comments backwards and forwards on the uh, on our on our website and some of the uh, the, the show episode comments uh, about some issues uh, some interesting things. It was quite lively, quite interesting and uh, stirred up a bit of debate, which is always a lot of fun. Woohoo. So we just wanted to uh, say to Alex, uh, we've got your email made and I know you've sent us a couple of others in and uh, trying to work out some time. So uh, we, we are uh, working to uh, find a time that will work out for all of us and uh, we really look forward to talking to you. But uh, we just wanted to acknowledge uh, that uh, he's been uh, making some uh, really interesting contributions to the uh, PCDU community lately and uh, that's what we like to see here. It's what it's all about, isn't it, Grant?
1: Oh, definitely. It's all about getting everyone together and having a good old chat and helping to build awareness about what's going on and promote activities and people's thoughts and opinions
0: and so on. and Yeah, let's let's get more happening. Absolutely. And speaking of things that we're going to promote, Grant, it's time for shout-outs.
1: Oh, cool. And the first shout-out I've got here is uh, for Camper English. Uh, now, Camper was uh, part of the party crew that I used to hang with way back when I was living in Boston and uh, he's now moved on to San Francisco where he is a freelance writer specialising in the uh, um, spirits and cocktails scene and uh, he's been writing for the san francisco chronicle and a number of other newspapers and magazines about the uh, bar culture and uh, cocktails mixes and spirits and so on and uh, he's decided to set up a uh, aircraft drinks menu collection Uh, it's part of his site and uh, he has a uh, he has a whole page where you can send him a photo of the drinks menu on an aircraft that you've flown on, and you just tell him which airline, what date, where you were flying from and to, and the photo of the menu, and he's going to build up that collection and hopefully be able to see what uh, airlines are supplying the best drinks when you're flying, which is uh, very important if you're sitting in the back there. I'm a big fan of the tranquilizer trolley. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, Campus site is known as Alcademics as in uh, alcoholic uh, academics, you might say. And that's Alcademics, A L C A D M I C S, And, of course, we'll put that in the show notes. So if you do a Google search for Alcademics, you'll find Camper. Uh, if you go to our PCDU commentaries site, you'll see a um, little write-up I gave it, and that has a direct link to the page in question, but we'll also put it in the show notes. But, uh, yeah, nifty idea. All the different kinds of drinks you can find at 30,000 feet.
0: Excellent stuff, mate, and uh, you, you know what we need to do is uh, we also need to get one that talks about the best coffee you can get on an airline, because, you know, coffee is my staple diet.
1: Yeah, I have noticed that you seem to be right into your coffee, and it's amazing the number of uh, pilots uh, that we've found around the world who are into their coffee. I, I don't know. I, I don't like coffee at all. I can't drink it.
0: Of course, our friend over there in New Zealand, Dan Morris, uh, we know is also a, uh, a coffee enthusiast, and um, he actually has some uh, some interesting uh, coffee brews that he talks about on his Twitter feed and on his, uh, on his blog there, so um, yeah, we... Uh, We'll have to get on and have a chat to Dan soon about uh, all that sort of stuff.
1: I think we will. That will be a good, good idea.
0: Okay, one more shout-out, Grant, before we finish off this week, and we're going to talk about our great friend David Hoof. Uh, David's actually put out his own podcast talking about military aviation, Grant.
1: Oh, that's awesome. And, in fact, it is awesome. I have listened to the first episode.
0: Yep, and as we record this, in fact, in the last 24 hours uh, as we record this, the second episode of his podcast has come out. Now, uh, wow. Grant and I and David, and for that matter, Anthony Simmons, are all huge fans of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, um, I rather foolishly once mentioned to Anthony Simmons that I was a fanatic, and uh, boy, we got into a trivia contest where I felt like an absolute amateur. So, uh, yeah, Anthony would be the uh, the absolute guru of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide stuff, but uh, but in that vein, David has decided to call his podcast The Hitchhiker's Guide to Military Aviation. And you can find that at hhg2ma, as in Hitchhiker's Guide to Military Aviation, dot Don't
1: worry folks, it'll be in the show notes.
0: And it'll be in the show notes now. Uh, David, as I said, he's put two two fantastic podcasts out so far, and uh, David's really in his element here. And you would have noticed that in the in the previous episodes where uh, David and I were talking about the uh, the FA eighteen. David studied military history uh, in college, so uh, he, and he's right up on it. He's from a military family. His father was uh, was in the air force, so he's grown up around this stuff all his life. And uh, uh, when it comes to military aviation, uh, he just he knows facts and figures like you wouldn't believe, folks. So I really encourage you to get out there. The Hitchhiker's Guide to Military Aviation. Uh, you'll find links in the show notes, and uh, we look forward to many, many more.
1: Yeah, it's a great start, and uh, it's it's great to have him out here talking about a subject he loves so much. Uh, the first episode has a number of uh, in-jokes for regular listeners to Playing Crazy and the Airplane Geeks.
0: Yep, and uh, the, the second one he's got out now is talking about uh, COD, Grant. you know what COD is? Carrier Onboard Delivery. Yeah, exactly right. Ha, uh, uh, ah, ha, didn't think I'd know that, did I, you? I didn't think you'd know that either, so there you go. So <laughs> I didn't know whether how many Tom Clancy books you'd read, but yeah, that's oh, the-, uh, no, the David's not the only military geek. Yeah, so that's the C2 Greyhound. So he's talking to some uh, some crew there uh, this excellent. week, uh, amongst excellent. other things. He does uh, news as well. So excellent I might stuff. Just
1: have, I might just have to nip off and download it. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll be very humane.
0: Oh, God. Right. <laughs> oh no, we've
1: started 42. <laughs> there we go. How many roads must a man walk down? Yes.
0: So that's it for shout-outs, Grant. Now, uh, just before we finish up, we uh, have a couple of little housekeeping things to do, and the first one, of course, refers to the uh, the flight giveaway for Flight City. So he's throwing in a, uh, a one-hour flight in the 777 simulator over there at uh, Flight City in uh, Perth at Jandicott. And, uh, you know, it's been a couple of days, Grant, since we recorded that, and we've been putting our heads together trying to work out just what exactly we would do for a, for a contest. What we're going to do is I'm going to play to you a short audio clip. What we're going to do is get our listeners to email us telling us which airline used this jink.
1: You should see us now. Okay, now you'll have to. Wow, (laughs) you stumped me. So there you go, folks. Once you think about it and once you've got it right, send it in via email to planecrazydownunder at gmail.com and tell us which airline you think it was had that jingle and we will draw the lucky winner live on Ustream from the pool of entries.
0: And we'll announce the winners in the next episode, so uh, keep an eye on our Twitter stream or on the website, and we'll make sure we keep you informed as to when we do that draw. We'll let the downloads of the show get up to a certain level. We haven't decided yet, but we'll probably wait till it gets up around the... You know, probably seven hundred mark. I think that's uh, pretty average for most of our shows. That'll happen in the first few days, hopefully. So, um, in fact, uh, our last show had uh, has had quite a, an increase in the download level. So we're very pleased with that. Not really sure why, but we're not arguing with it either. So, uh, no, argue not. <laughs> Keep downloading, folks. Yeah. So let me just play that jingle for you one more time, folks, just so you can get it in your head. Now, once we've received all the uh, the entries, we'll sort out all the correct ones and we'll put all the correct ones into a hat and we'll draw it out and we'll stream that from the studio here using Ustream, as Grant said. So perhaps what we'll do, Grant, is uh, we'll pick one winning entry out of the correct ones and perhaps two more and we'll send them a Playing Crazy Down Under t-shirt. I think that would, uh, that would be good.
1: Yeah, that could be fun and maybe we'll even pick the funniest wrong answer. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, there we go. And we'll... You could win two Playing Crazy Down Under t-shirts.
0: <laughs> so there you go, folks. For those of you who recognise it, any- instantly, well, you'll we'll, uh, we'll know pretty quickly because we'll see the emails come in, but for the rest of you, well, you'll just have to do a bit of research. And we'll be putting it up on our Facebook
1: and on our Twitter, so making sure that everyone doesn't leave this for another week or so before they get around to listening because you
0: could be too late. Mm, so uh, good luck with that, folks. Now, just before we close the show off, back at the start we mentioned that there was uh, some extra audio that we were going to offer offer for the uh, Matt Hall interview. Now, we actually recorded that interview uh, back at the start of September, so it's been sitting in storage for a little while. Uh, back at that time uh, I had intended to uh, head up to the Williamtown uh, Air Force Base for their air show and a few weeks after we recorded that um, – now, that was going to happen. Unfortunately, due to some unforeseen circumstances, that trip didn't go ahead. And we had quite a detailed discussion with Matt about what he was going to be flying at that air show. Uh, he was coming in in his Mustang, I believe, wasn't he, Grant? Yes, he was. He was going to be leading a massive formation of multiple aircraft. Yeah, so he offered quite a uh, fantastic description of uh, how he was going to set that up and uh, it was really, really interesting stuff. So what we had to do was to uh, cut that bit of audio out to keep it relevant to now. But, uh, you know, Grant, we just thought it was uh, way too much of a a great discussion to uh, leave out. On top of that, we also had a great discussion about uh, F-111s. And uh, folks, if you've ever thought there was any sort of friendly rivalry between the (laughs) branches of the service, uh, he actually gives us a uh, quite humorous uh, description of the F-111 and his experience with it. So we're actually going to put a few clips of that into the outtakes as well, but the uh, full five or six minute clip that we cut out of the original interview, uh, we're going to put that up on our website for a separate download. Uh, If you'd like to hear it, even though it's uh, a little bit non-current now, it was a really interesting discussion.
1: That's right. Just come to our website and uh, you'll find it as a comment or on the menu, I'll set up an additional section and you'll be able to go and uh, pick up those extras.
0: Excellent. Well, another busy episode comes to an end, folks. That's about everything we have for you. Thanks so much for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Our next episode is going to feature the last two of our red. Air Ace season wraps. We'll have Nigel Lamb and Pete McLeod. I know we've been promising those for quite a while. Uh, We're going to uh, get those ones out and we're also about to record another fantastic discussion with Baz Sheffers featuring uh, some more discussion on the recreational aviation scene. So we'll see how we go. We'll probably splice that one into the next episode as well. So lots to look forward to. We promise it won't be a month between it releases this time, won't we Grant? Fingers crossed. Yeah, well I'll try and keep the day job in check and we'll see what we can do. And uh, don't forget also folks, if you just can't get enough of Stephen Grant, you can also find us every week with our Australia News Desk report on The Airplane Geek Show That's at Airplanegeeks.com And also every second week On Flight Time Radio That's at Flighttimeradio.com With our Flying Down Under segment And that segment's now Proudly sponsored by Planehook Aviation Services We're really thrilled That we've picked up A sponsor of that segment For our American listeners In particular That's at Planehook.com So make sure you go And support those guys Because they're supporting us And we really appreciate it So while we're madly Editing the next one folks When you're looking around The world of online Aviation podcasts Just
4: remember this It's what's down under That counts You've been listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Visher and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It Five by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast.
0: There's a question we've never asked you. Have you ever uh, been up in an F111? I assume you have.
2: Yeah, I've been in an F111. and um,
0: Now tell us, Matt, was- is there any sort of rivalry between the F111 drivers and the Hornet drivers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yeah.
2: I, I thought that was just a cautious <laughs> yes. So I've been up in that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I went for a ride in a B111 once.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Wow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was a no, fantastic, very capable aircraft. and, um, and
0: um, the-, oh. In the interview we did with him that uh, he was going to have, he wanted to uh, give oh, away. Do line. you want to re-record that bit? Because that's me going, oh. <laughs> In fact, we might just do that whole thing from the top.
1: Yes, your end. Is it? Right to go.
0: You, you say it like it's a question. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm asking you that. Yet. I know. I'm the one I pressing no- the button here. <laughs> <laughs> I have no control. You're the president. You get to push the button and nuke the goldfish. <laughs> All right. And someone else was just. Uh, I'll say that again.
1: <laughs> someone else who just happened to be there. No, it was just some other
0: <laughs> random person. Yeah. Well, of course, our friend over in New Zealand, Dan Morris, uh, will, will, uh, you know, probably thinks you're probably just thinks you're as weird as I think you. Are. you know, that doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> there we go.
1: How many roads
0: must a man walk down? Yes. All right. Let's sign this off before I get in even more trouble. Excellent, Benzie. Excellent. Well, that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy. Out. Playing Crazy Dan Under. Well that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Dan Unders